Did you know that Delaware has endless discoveries? The first state invites you to explore miles of beaches and boardwalks, dozens of unique breweries, award-winning restaurants, some of the country's best state parks, beautiful garden estates, and even tax-free shopping. There's plenty of fun for the entire family and more. Find trip ideas and all the info you need to plan your Delaware discoveries at visitdelaware.com. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Whiskey. Today's suck is soaked in whiskey, mostly in Jameson, some Irish whiskey, a great drink for some fun times, kicking back and enjoying the tastes of one of the best exports the Emerald Isle has to offer. Also a popular drink in my experience for people to torture you with by buying you shot after shot after shot until you're spinning and puking in the parking lot. Talking about Jameson will lead us obviously into talking about cannibalism. Yep. John Jameson, the founder of Jameson, was originally a lawyer from Aloha in Scotland before he founded his distillery in Dublin in 1780. In 1805, he was joined by his son, John Jameson Jr., who took over the family business. For the next 41 years, Jr. built up the business before handing it over to his son, John Jameson III, in 1851. They were killing it. By the turn of the 19th century, Jameson's distilleries were the second largest producer in Ireland of whiskey and one of the largest in the world, producing a million gallons annually. Dublin at the time was the center of world whiskey production. It was the second most popular spirit in the world after rum and internationally Jameson had by 1805 became the world's number one whiskey. And then almost a century later, at the end of the 19th century, the Jameson name would get tarnished a wee bit when reports came back from the Congo that John's great-grandson, James S. Jameson, Jimmy James, paid to watch a young girl be killed and eaten. Cannibalism. Not a great PR moment. Hard to build a successful ad campaign around some cannibalism. What the hell happened in the Congo? We'll look into that today. And before we look into that, we'll look into how whiskey came about and how alcohol itself came about. And today's, how did I spend so much time drinking alcohol all these years, but know so very little about it? Why the hell are we also talking about cannibalism edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, and happy May, Meat Sacks. Holy shit, is it already May? Uh, you know, working on five months of separation between the present and the twilight zone that was 2020 now. Welcome back to the Cult of the Curious. Recorded this in advance of the QAnon suck releasing and can only imagine the handful of furious emails. 
YouTube slander, and one-star ratings I have to look forward to online. I'm sure many will think I've gone to the left while I still find myself in the middle. Uh, I like some stuff on the right, like some stuff on the left, and hate some stuff on both sides. I like to a la carte my politics and not just order some meal that comes with a bunch of side dishes I didn't want. I'm Dan Cummins, a sock master, whiskey lover, cannibalism opponent, not advocate, Lucifina, deep tissue massager, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, Lucifina, Triple M, Bojangles, the God, the Temptress, the Bard, and the canine mascot of the Suckers. Uh, recording per usual in the Suck Dungeon out of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, uh, which feels like the pollen capital of the world right now. Why do blooming trees have to hurt so much, Mother Nature? Why are you trying to kill me with beauty? My voice sounds a little different right now. It's because no matter how much allergy medicine I take, no matter how much water I drink, I just can't overcome the uh, massive amounts of pollen pumping off the trees right now. I uh, got a bunch of stand-up comedy dates booked for the fall and for all of next year, which I'm excited about, looking forward to, uh, nervous as hell about uh, finding out how, uh, if I remember or not, how to do stand-up again. I'm, I'm hoping so. <laughs> I, I feel like it's going to come back. Uh, I'm going to have some dates posted on dancummins.tv soon. For right now, you can go to the following venues' websites for August through October dates. Going to call the new stand-up tour the Symphony of Insanity. Has to do with some material I was working on before COVID changed the world and just feels right. Feels like everything's a little more insane than it used to be. I'll be in Cleveland, August 13th and 14th. I'll be in San Antonio, August 19th. Laugh Out Loud Comedy Club. Uh, I'll be at the Secret Group in Houston, August 20th. The uh, Texas Theater in Dallas, August 21st. Helium in Portland, August 26th and 28th. I'll be at the Punchline in Philadelphia, September 9th and 11th. I'll be at the Funny Bone in Columbus, September 24th, 25th. Cobbs in San Francisco, October 8th and 9th. Spokane Comedy Club, October 15th to the 17th, and the Kansas City Improv, October 22nd to the 23rd. So I, ho I hope to see some of you there. Uh, super different kind of item now in the store at badmagicmerch.com. A rug, a bad magic rug, two feet by three feet, three feet by five feet, or four feet by six feet. Each color represents a piece of each of the podcasts. Time Suck, Scared to Death, Is We Dumb, and The Secret Suck, all represented by individual stripes. You can step into spring by stepping on some suck, by stepping on some bad magic. Uh, should have a, a May Bad Magic Productions charity to announce next month. Uh, just, a, just a bit early, recording-wise, to have that information today. And that's it for announcements. Now, let's get fucked up. Or, or at least learn about humans started getting fucked up. And the fucked up cannibalism incident that for a while tarnished the Jameson whiskey name. The Space Lizards have spoken. Our Patreon supporters who vote on and choose two topics a month picked a weird one this month. The Dark History of Jameson Whiskey. And it's a great choice. However, it is the topic with the least amount of information out there about it thus far out of any topic we've looked into. Other than my pop award, of course. There just are not a lot of details about an heir to the Jameson Whiskey fortune paying for an African girl to be eaten in the 19th century. The details that are out there, we will share them today. And it is, you know, dark and interesting for sure. Uh, but if we only shared them, this would be about a 10-minute episode. So to lead up to this incident, we're going to learn a little bit about the Jameson Whiskey uh, family, right? how they came to be, how they became the top-selling brand of Irish whiskey in the world by far. Uh, in 2017, Jameson sold some 6.6 .6 million cases of Irish whiskey. The second best-selling brand, Tullamore Dew, sold 1.2 million cases just a third of what Jameson sold. And that doesn't even account for Jameson's cultural clout. To many consumers around the globe, Jameson is Irish whiskey and Irish whiskey is Jameson. Jameson's Irish whiskey is thought of as an essential part of Ireland's history and culture, right up there with the poetry of W.B. Yeats. 
Probably Yates is probably messing that up. Should have got a pronunciation. I felt confident when I was reading it. Now I'm like, God, I don't know. Seamus Haney, the pros of James Joyce, nailed that one for sure. Songs of U2, Bono, boom, nailed that. And Enya, never forget Enya. Sure, sure, Enya. Sail away somewhere. What's that Celtic elf up to these days? Probably meditating under a waterfall right now, right? Teaching some elves or fairies yoga. Probably just got engaged to a centaur. Uh, Back to Irish whiskey. Uh, In Gaelic, whiskey translates to water of life. I have bought a lot of Jameson whiskey myself over the years. It's not that expensive and I think it's pretty smooth. Good bang for the buck. If you're not going to drink it neat, no ice and no mixers, don't waste your money on far more expensive brands. You know, if you're making a whiskey ginger, my most frequently uh, drank drink, you're probably not going to taste much difference between like Macallan 18, which costs around 250 bucks a handle, and Jameson, which costs around 50 bucks a handle. So save your money, meat sacks. I'll tell you, we'll meet the founder of Jameson, learn a little about Irish whiskey's beginnings. And before diving into Jameson history, we'll learn a lot about how alcohol just came to be, just in general. I think that's the most interesting part of this suck. We're going to learn how whiskey evolved out of beer, what is whiskey, what different kinds are out there, what's the difference between like scotch and bourbon, for example. What do fermentation and distillation have to do with hard liquor production? So much to learn. So let's get started. How the hell did we humans figure out just how to get drunk in the first place? Well, the history of alcohol is tied to the history of bread. Fire was the first great invention when it came to cooking. The second, a fungus that played a very, very large role in the development of human civilization. Yeast, leaven that bread, make it rise up. Yeast that juice into some wine. So where does yeast come from? Well, get ready to gag. You're not going to like where this is going. Just don't shoot the messenger. Like humans of today, early humans used to get a lot of yeast infections. I'm sure you've either had one or heard of it. Most commonly, meat sacks get them in their vaginas or next to or behind their ball sacks. And yeast fungi uh, found naturally on the skin would start growing out of the, you know, out of control in a yeast infection, you know, cause the infection. Archaeologists and anthropologists surmise that early humans liked the smell for some reason and taste of the yeast from these infections, and they would rub the oily, gritty special sauce a yeast infection makes on like bread, uh, on some fruit to give it a little extra kick, throw a little zest on it, as utterly disturbing as that sounds. And then sometimes whatever they rubbed it on, like some apples would get wet and rot a bit and the yeast would grow further. And as a byproduct of feeding on its little fungus self, the yeast infection would convert the fruit's sucrose sugar into a very crude form of alcohol. And that early alcohol would get humans drunk. Still will do the trick. Uh, uh, Today, in a lot of prisons, guys will make what they call twine, thought to come from taint wine by putting some grapes behind or off to the sides of their balls uh, when they have a yeast infection and let it ferment a bit before adding it to a bottle of soggy bread to give it that beer flavor. Then you mix that with some water in a cell, often with gag again, toilet water, uh, similarly, a lot of female inmates will brew what's known as uh, a little hilariously, I think, as puss cider, uh, more commonly known as hooch, by sticking apple slices into the front butts and letting it stew in a yeast infection, then pulling out that infection goop and soaking that in some grape juice. You know, showbiz, delish. Sorry, uh, <laughs> extra apologies if you just threw up all over yourself. Uh, I went off the rails a bit after bringing up yeast. The history of bread and alcohol are tied not to yeast infections, but they are. <laughs> But they are tied to yeast. And I hope just like my, with, with, like with my dog, the bounty hunter, hacker lie, I hope some of you are like, are you fucking kidding me? The first alcohol came from yeast infections? 
That's so gross. <laughs> it is. It is. Maybe you, maybe you could make it though. You should try. Uh, there are many types of yeast. They're all fungi. And these little fungi yeasts are all over the place. In your vagina, on and around your balls, for sure. But also in other places that are not as gross. Various types of yeast are naturally found floating in the air on just about every surface on earth, including uh, every opened piece of cheese in your fridge, where if you don't eat it fast enough, right, they're going to multiply. They're going to form those little cream-colored colony spots you see on cheese sometimes. Yummy! Sweet little yeasts also found on grape skins. And said grapes can start to ferment if the temperature and moisture around them is right, if they've been left sitting around long enough. And that is probably how the first wines got going, right? Some ancient meat sack was just trying to make some fruit juice, or maybe they were just really, really hungry. And they were just willing to eat some overly ripe, mushed up grapes, right? They found a pile of grapes under the grapevines on the ground. They're just, they're so hungry. It, was, it had been raining and it had just been sitting there fermenting. And then they, they tasted a little bit funky. And then they just kept eating them, even though they tasted funky because they were so hungry. And then they started feeling a little bit different, right? They got a little buzzed and they liked it. Later, they wanted to get buzzed again. And they fucked around with some ripe grapes until they had that feeling again. Then they started experimenting further, found out that they mushed those grapes just right, left their juice out long enough under the right conditions, right? You could consistently get that buzz. Drink too much and your head would spin. Maybe you throw up. Maybe you feel like shit the next day. Drink a little less. Maybe you don't get sick, but uh, maybe your judgment's a little bit different. Maybe you fuck somebody that you always uh, knew you were attracted to, but you couldn't stand their personality. Hail Lucifina. And you drink a little more than that. Maybe you uh, fuck somebody's personality you don't like and were never attracted to, but suddenly they're looking great. Easy Lucifina. What are you doing right now? Maybe you drink enough to uh, finally decide that, you know what? Fuck Chad, right? And you bop him in the head with your club. You've always wanted to, but you used to be afraid of him beating your ass. But now you suddenly feel especially courageous. That's alcohol, baby. Helping people have a great time and make terrible decisions since whoever first drank that funky tasting fermented grape juice. All thanks to yeast. Uh, yeast are great at making bread beer and wine because they are good at harvesting energy from sugar without oxygen, a process called fermentation. When harvesting energy, yeast produces two pretty great waste byproducts. They shit carbon dioxide, which puts, which puts the, uh, the lift in leavened bread and the bubbles in beer, and they piss alcohol called ethanol, which adds interesting but well-known properties to wine and beer, but evaporates uh, in the bread in the oven, uh, which is why, you know, going to town in a bunch of loafs might still give you that carb-fueled beer gut, but it won't actually fuck you up. Fermentation is a strange and magical controlled form of spoilage. During fermentation, the yeast feeding on wheat, barley, grapes, whatever, will produce many different enticing flavors not originally found in the wheat, barley, or grapes, as anyone can attest who's been intoxicated by the smell of fresh yeast bread or appreciated how a glass of fine wine differs from some grape juice. Why grapes, wheat, and barley? Uh, why did those foods uh, specifically become alcohol? Well, those were just commonly grown and harvested ancient foods that contained the kind of carbs that yeast liked to eat, the right sugars. They were foods left out in the right conditions for fermentation to occur. Same with rice in the East, same with potatoes in many parts of the world. You can ferment all sorts of stuff and make alcohol. Uh, the ancient Mesopotamians and Sumerians, the world's earliest civilizations, they were brewing early forms of beer and wine as early as 10,000 BCE. In Babylonia, clay tablets with a recipe for beer were found from approximately the year 6,000 BCE, first documented evidence of beer making. And can you guess what that recipe relied on? Yes, butthole yeast. Kidding. <laughs> that is horrific, but I wish it was true. No, it was not from a butthole yeast, uh, yeast infection. Now, this, this recipe utilized underbaked bread made from germinated barley. 
Being underbaked, the bread would serve as a live yeast culture. And when the bread would be cut into small pieces and placed in a large jug with water, malt would be produced. The pre-inoculated malt, when left out, would ferment to give you some beer. Terrible beer, but still beer. The shit sounds about as tasty as that taint wine nonsense or that prison hooch jibber-jabber I made up earlier, but it got the job done. Uh, then some ancient micro-brewing hipsters figured out how to flavor that shit up, right? They'd stir in some dates, herbs, honey for taste. What they didn't include was hops. That wouldn't be included until centuries later. Hops, which all modern beer has. Hops gives beer, uh, you know, it's beer flavor. Hops are the flowers or cones from a plant called Humulus lupulus. Hops also help to keep beer fresh for longer. They help uh, beer retain its head of foam, a key component of beer's aroma and flavor. And of course, they add that, uh, you know, hoppy kind of bitterness to beer. Other cultures around the world not familiar with grapes or barley were finding other food to ferment and into some happy juice, as I mentioned earlier. In ancient China, rice was used to make rice beer. Uh, in pre-Columbian civilizations in the Americas, corn was used instead of barley. And probably at first without knowing it, uh, it was important and a refined part of the secret recipe, ancient South American peoples added their own enzyme to break down cornstarch by first chewing the corn before placing it into a fermentation tank. And the saliva from their mouths served as the enzyme in the process of starch conversion to sugar and gave their beer a vastly improved and distinct flavor. Beautiful little accidents occurring here and there over many, many centuries has given us so many great things. Uh, in rural areas of Russia, Kvass was made by adding pieces of stale black bread to malt, flour, sugar, and water, uh, and allowing that mixture mixture to ferment. It resulted in some kind of fucked up Russian black bread gruel beer stuff that likely tasted somewhere between rotten assholes and toe jam, but was drank anyway because, well, Russians may be the toughest people on earth with the most fuck it inside of them. So how did all of this lead to whiskey? Unlike beer and wine, spirits, hard liquor requires a second step after fermentation distillation. Fermentation can happen by accident. Wild yeast can easily stumble upon some rotted fruit and ferment those sugars into alcohol. But distilling, that requires intention. Whiskey is a dark distilled spirit made from a variety of grains, including barley, corn, rye, and wheat. It's distilled throughout the world, most popularly in Ireland, Scotland, United States, Canada, and Japan. Uh, there are various styles of whiskey, and some countries have regulations that stipulate how it's produced whether it's Irish whiskey, Scotch bourbon, or uh, Canadian whiskey. It's one of the most popular liquors in the world, used in numerous cocktail recipes, or simply served straight. Have it neat or on the rocks. Uh, surprisingly, at least to me, drinkers in India consume the most whiskey, though the country's own whiskey is rarely exported. Uh, they just import a lot of whiskey. Whiskey was originally used as a medicine, both as an internal anesthetic and as a external antibiotic. It's a relatively recent discovery in terms of distilling. Meat sacks have been distilling things for a long, long time, beginning around 2000 BCE, when an early form of distillation was found in ancient Mesopotamia. The modern-day equivalent uh, is, is in an area covering parts of Iraq and Syria, where it was used to produce perfumes and aromatics. Around 100 CE, humans first recorded information about the distilling process. Uh, distilling has a strange history. We meat sacks made it to distilling through alchemy, that mystical precursor to modern chemical engineering. That strange art where ancient scientists mistook science for magic and tried to do shit like turn lead into gold. Uh, there had been prior evidence of crudely distilled alcoholic beverages, liquors made from things like rice and mare's milk in Asia as far back as 800 BCE. Fermented mare's milk. Mmm, kumis. We were introduced to that fine Mo Mongolian cocktail in the Genghis Khan suck. Uh, still have not tried it. Still think it sounds disgusting. Uh, evidence of distilling knowledge soon found its way to ancient Greece prior uh, to the first century CE. 
Writings in the 4th century CE attributed the development of a three-armed pot still to a woman cited in ancient sources as Maria the Jewess, the first documented Western alchemist. She connected two hollow vessels with a tube. Liquid would have been heated in the first vessel to create aromatic vapors in a roundish container, cooled, then diverted through a tube to a second vessel or receiver, where as it cooled, it would return to liquid form. Uh, no one, as far as we know, was applying that process to fermented grapes or barley, though, to get extra fucked up yet. Uh, centuries later, in the 8th century CE, an Arab, uh, Arabic alchemist, Abu Musa Jabir uh, Abin Hayyan, designed the Alembic pot still, a contraption that allowed for the effective distillation of alcohol. But still, no one was playing drinking games and throwing back whiskey shots quite yet. Jabir was not interested in getting fucked up. He was driven by science by medicine, even when fellow alchemist Muhammad Abin Zakaria Razi began refining the practice of distilling alcohol in the ninth century, it still wasn't to get drunk. Distilled alcohol was being used primarily for ritual and medicine. The first documented use of distilled alcohol in Europe, where meat sacks would first start drinking whiskey, uh, comes from Italy in the 12th century, from the medical school of Salerno. The Italians may be the first to use the uh, you know distilled liquor to get fucked up. In Salerno in the 12th century, the journey of hard liquor begins in the West. The earliest instructions for the distilling of alcohol from wine that we know of appear in a short introduction to the study of medicine written around 1150 by a not well-known master of Salerno. Uh, but distilling and mass-producing hard liquor still wouldn't come about for hundreds of years. The first published book devoted to the subject, The Virtuous Art of Distilling, penned by the unfortunately named Hieronymus Brunsquig, uh, wouldn't show up for another 350 years, published in 1500, and it still treats distilled alcohol like medicine. Uh, but a few historical references illustrate that aquavite, an early euphemistic nickname for booze, Latin for water of life, was being imbibed and enjoyed for at least a century by this point. So we've been enjoying some form of hard liquor, uh, at least in the West, for recreational use for uh, around 600 years. Shots, shots, shots. A uh, hard liquor, not just beer, wine, and Mike Hard's, uh, Mike's Hard Lemonade, had found a recreational audience. Uh, did I mention that Mike's Hard Lemonade was first made before whiskey back in 1413 by Sissy Bridges von Lightweight? Uh, it wasn't. Uh, before moving to the origin of whiskey, specifically a little more about the alcohol distillation process. Distillation is the process by which a liquid, again, is heated to create a vapor, then condensed back into a liquid again. The basic concept of distilling alcohol is pretty simple. Making a harder alcohol from a lower alcohol base. Going back to yeast, as yeast heat, uh, eats up sugars to make beer, wine, etc., they create, create alcohol and CO2 as waste products. Uh, we went over that again. We did not go over the fact that the more alcohol and CO2 they create, the less sugar there is for them to feed on. And at a certain point, somewhere between 14 to 18% alcohol by volume, the alcohol levels become toxic for the yeast. So to create anything substantially hard, to get a much higher ABV level, you have to physically separate alcohol from water using evaporation and condensation, right? AKA distilling. Because alcohol has a lower boiling point than water, 173 degrees Fahrenheit versus 212 degrees Fahrenheit, distillers can evaporate the alcohol mostly by itself, collect the vapors into a tube, then use colder temperatures to force the alcohol to condense back into liquid form. And without getting too alcohol nerdy, you can then distill the alcohol again, a double distillation to remove a few impurities, that made it through the first distillation, then sometimes yet again, triple distilled to get out still more impurities. Uh, triple distillation is strongly associated with Irish whiskey and a smoother flavor. Jameson's whiskey is triple distilled. 
A triple distillation helps to concentrate not only the alcohol, but also produces lighter, more fruity flavors. The heavier, more water-soluble compounds are left behind at every stage. And there's a lot more nuance to it than that. A lot more. Ask any whiskey nerd and then clear your schedule so you have time for their answer. Uh, there's a whole craft to distilling, just like there's a craft to brewing beer. Uh, I could go in even more depth, but I don't think anyone is coming to time set to learn how to actually make Irish whiskey. I'm not qualified to lay that out if they were. Uh, I can just barely wrap my head around the, the, the basics and explain them. I think we've all gotten the general gist now of how liquor is made, right? It doesn't come from yeast infections, but it does come from yeast. And then from heating an alcoholic liquid into a vapor, then cooling that vapor into a stronger, more pure form of alcohol than when you started. We'll go over uh, a bit more when I lay out different types of whiskey uh, here soon. Right now, let's back up to almost a thousand years ago to bring the distillation process to Ireland. Distilling techniques were brought to Ireland and Scotland sometime between 1100 and 1300 CE by monks. Of course they were. Those sad motherfuckers had taken vows of essentially unhappiness where they weren't supposed to fuck or try and accrue wealth or tell dirty, dirty jokes or have too much fun or sometimes even speak. Uh, more than anyone else, I'm guessing they really wanted to get drunk to take the edge off. Speculating here, but I feel like I'm not entirely wrong. Uh, since wine was not easy to come by in Ireland and Scotland at the time, not a lot of vineyards back then, but there was plenty of barley. Barley beer was made locally. And then when distil uh, distillation came to the area, that was distilled into whiskey. The early distillation process was rough. The whiskey was not allowed to age, which meant it tasted way worse than today's versions. And it was super potent. Really put some hair in your chest. Over time, they figured out how to smooth it out. You know, they wanted to drink something that did not make you squint your eyes real hard after you threw a swig back and then bang on the table and say something like, holy fuck, that burns. Mother Mary, Joseph, and sweet baby Jesus. Burns all the way down on my balls. Uh, the first written record of whiskey appears in the Irish annals of Clockmacnoise. Uh, Clockmacnoise. There we go. This word is so fucked up. C-L-O-N-M-A-C-N-O-I-S-E. Clockmacnoise. Clamic noise. It's simple. You got a clamic noise. Uh, this, this, this book covered events in Ireland from prehistory to 1408, uh, where it was written that the head of a clan died after taking a surfeit, excessive amount of aquavitae at Christmas. Hilarious. Dad uh, went hard on Christmas one year and took himself out. You don't tell me how to drink. I can handle it. I can just drink a whole other bottle and I'll begin to follow myself. Give me a year. Glug, glug, dead. Uh, whiskey would be produced uh, pretty much exclusively by monks at monasteries until around 1541. So you had to know a monk to really get your hand on some whiskey. Then the production of whiskey would shift to the general public after King Henry VIII of England dissolved the monasteries, making a large number of monks independent. They were unemployed and they were looking for new ways to make a living. And a lot of those, you know, pious monks became well-to-do whiskey makers. I love that transition. Whiskey started off in church. Monks dicking around trying to figure out how to make their beer stronger so they could forget about being monks. Uh, soon these former monks taught their trade to the sons they could now openly have and to others uh, like some whiskey-loving folks living in bushmills. With a license to distill Irish whiskey dating all the way back to 1608, the old Bushmills Distillery in Northern Ireland is the oldest licensed whiskey distillery in the world. After the English malt tax of 1725 greatly increased the price of alcohol to help pay for a war against France, most of Scotland's distillation went underground. Scotch whiskey was hidden under uh, altars, uh, in coffins, noise, and in any available space to avoid government supervision and more importantly, taxes. Scottish distillers operating out of homemade stills 
took to distilling whiskey at night when the darkness hid the smoke from the stills. And for that reason, the drink became known as moonshine. Fun fact. At one point, it was estimated that over half of Scotland's whiskey output was illegal. A lot of moonshine. Lots of lower year inhibition sex juice being brewed under the cover of darkness. Hail Lucifina. Across the Atlantic, whiskey was now being used as currency during the American Revolution. George Washington, right, America's first president, actually operated a large distillery at Mount Vernon. In 1799, George Washington's distillery, making some rye whiskey, was producing uh, nearly 11,000 gallons. It was one of the largest whiskey distilleries in America. Drugs, drugs, drugs. America loves drugs. Alcohol is for sure a drug. Uh, given the distances and primitive transportation network of colonial America, many farmers often found it easier, more profitable to convert corn to whiskey and transport it to the market in that form. Still a lot of corn being used in American whiskey. Corn being used in bourbon. Corn, uh, you know, use uh, kind of defines bourbon. We'll explain that in a bit. In 1823, the UK passed the Excise Act, allowing for legal distillation for a very small fee now, and that put a practical end to large-scale production of Scottish moonshine. They were making legal scotch now. Fast forward ahead to the Prohibition era in the U.S. from 1920 to 1933, all alcohol sales banned in the U.S., the federal government made an exemption for whiskey prescribed by a doctor, though, and sold through licensed pharmacies. And during that time, the Walgreens pharmacy chain grew from 20 retail stores to almost 400. So uh, Walgreens became a massive chain, largely in part due to whiskey. Love it. So how is a lot of this whiskey being made? Uh, again, whiskey starts out just the same as beer. Uh, starts out, you know, as beer with a mash of grains, commonly barley, rye, or wheat, some, as in the case of barley, uh, may also be malted. Malted barley is just barley that has been allowed to germinate by soaking the grain in water. This prepares the starches to be converted into fermentable sugars. The grains are mixed with water and yeast for fermentation. Then the beer is run through a still, either a pot still or continuous column still, once, twice, thrice times a lady, uh, sometimes more than three times. The still is what turns what you know would be beer into whiskey. Uh, almost all whiskey is then barrel-aged for at least a few years. To be classified as whiskey in America, it has to be barreled for at least two years. And that aging gives whiskey its distinct golden color, as well as its wood and oak flavors. It picks up flavors and colors from wood. Uh, the longer whiskey is aged, typically the darker it gets. The sharp alcohol taste mellows out a little over time as well. So you're not just drinking shit that tastes like gasoline. Once matured, whiskey is diluted with some water and bottled at a minimum of 40 degrees ABV, right? Alcohol, uh, oh man. I had that, <laughs> I had that uh, written above. I said it earlier. Whatever I said earlier is what ABV, it's alcohol. Oh, alcohol by volume, I believe. Uh, some barrel strength whiskeys, if they're not diluted, may reach 140 proof, which is 70% alcohol, which is typically uh, not smooth. Anything above 100 proof is flammable, right? Because if anything above 100 proof is anything above 50% alcohol. Uh, 140 proof isn't just going to put hair on your chest. It's going to put it on, then it's going to burn it off. That's going to slap you the fuck out of whatever chair you're trying to sit in because you can't stand up anymore. Now that we know a bit about uh, whiskey's history, before we go into the Jameson's journey with whiskey, let's learn a bit about what kind of different whiskeys are out there. Let's become whiskey connoisseurs, or at least just not be whiskey idiots. Uh, perhaps you've been to a bar that proudly displays a big whiskey wall, right? With dozens, maybe even hundreds of bottles stacked up, a glowing collage of magic amber and brown elixirs. And like me, you pick the one that looks the coolest to you or has the best name because you can't remember what's supposed to be good other than the same three whiskeys you've been drinking for most of your life. Maybe you ask the bartender, what do you recommend? And then he or she goes on and on about how well this one or that one is aged and what notes it has. And 
you know, what it was barrel aged in and uh, maybe it's a wine cask or some shit and how a few drops of water really bring out its full body flavor with light vanilla notes and cherry accents or whatever. And you say, that sounds great. Haven't tried that one. You have no fucking idea what they're talking about. You know, and then you know before ever having a drink, no matter what it's going to actually taste like, you're going to sip it. Then you're going to look them right in the eye and say some version of, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I see that. The vanilla, uh, cherry. Mm-hmm. I, whatever, the things that you said, I can, I see it too, because I'm not stupid. You know, you just repeat it back to them so the stranger doesn't think you're an idiot. And you say thanks, and you walk away having no clue how, you, what, how you're drinking is any different than any other whiskey, other than it seems to be the most expensive. Whiskey can be, I think, a little bit intimidating. So where does one start their whiskey journey? Well, let me help you. Start your whiskey journey with a bottle of Old Crow. Pay attention. You can get a fifth, 750 milliliters of Old Crow for nine bucks if you go to the right store. And there's roughly 17 shots of the whiskey equivalent of lawnmower gasoline in that son of a bitch. Old Crow bourbon is best drank in a ditch. Since you're probably going to end up blacking out and passing out in a ditch, it's best to just start there. When it comes to the proper food pairing, Old Crow seems to go down best with some Slim Jim pepperoni and cheese sticks or freezer burnt ham and cheese hot pockets. Nothing too fresh. Anything without lots of preservatives or a hint of spoilage uh, really throws off the flavor profile of Old Crow. Uh, Gas station bean and cheese burritos that have been sitting on an unwashed grill for at least two weeks also taste very good with some Old Crow. Old Crow is aged for a minimum of two minutes in barrels that raccoons, skunks, and possums have been shitting in for years. Most Old Crow is barreled with at least one squirrel carcass. Uh, That's what sometimes gives it that uh, kind of a hint of decay in its flavor profile. Its initial taste has been described as like being punched in the mouth by a young Mike Tyson if he had just taken his fist out of the old woman from Throw Mama from the Train's butthole. Its finish has been described as somewhere between less than smooth and I can't see anything. Oh God, my eyes don't work. Why don't my eyes work? I'm scared, Mama. Why am I surrounded by demons? The best way to drink Old Crow is to dump the contents of the entire bottle out on the ground before you've sipped any of it, uh, probably near a dumpster or an alley, then throw the bottle as far as you can, cry for a bit, and reevaluate your entire life. Do not drink Old Crow. Not even if you're underage and desperate just to get drunk. No matter what the peer pressure is, just wait until I have a few more dollars, like three or four more dollars. Donate a bit more plasma. Respect yourself. Let's really learn about some whiskeys now. Uh, I... (laughs) We're never going to get an Old Crow sponsor for the show now. There are only three main differences between whiskeys. Uh, where they're made, what they're made from, and most importantly, what, they're, uh, what they taste like. Ideally, they do not taste like Mike Tyson's knuckles covered in old butthole. Depending on whom you ask, there are between five and seven different main regions where whiskey is distilled. The five regional whiskeys, always included, are Scotch whiskey, Irish whiskey, Kentucky bourbon, Canadian whiskey, and, can you guess the fifth? Tennessee whiskey. Uh, Japanese whiskey has also gotten really popular, so we'll mention that. Uh, New Zealand, Australia, there are other countries that make whiskey, uh, but thus far, traditionally, Scotland, Ireland, America, Japan are the big players. I'm sorry, in, in, in Canada. Uh, let's start with the U.S. There are tons of different kinds of whiskey from right here in the States, roughly but not always divided up by the region they come from. Whiskey that's made in the U.S. uses at least, uh, or whiskey, excuse me, that is made in the U.S. that uses at least 51% corn and is aged in first-use charred white oak barrels, then bottled between 80 and 160. Proof is bourbon. Bourbon is America's most prominent contribution to the world of whiskey. Uh, Bourbon accounts for two-thirds of U.S. distilled spirit export and is a tidy billion-dollar industry. For a whiskey to be properly labeled as bourbon, most purists will tell you it has to come from Kentucky. 
Others will simply say it just has to be American. Uh, the technical truth is that it can come from anywhere in America, but it must come from America to be called bourbon, and America loves bourbon. Congress has officially recognized bourbon as America's native spirit. Even the U.S. Senate has chimed in, declaring September as National Bourbon Heritage Month. Uh, bourbon, by U.S. law, in addition to having to be made in the U.S., it also has to be made up of at least 51% corn mash, aged in new charred oak barrels. All right, the other 49%, usually a mixture of barley, rye, or wheat, also has to be at least 80 proof, but no more than 160 proof. To be considered straight bourbon, must be aged for at least two years. Other bourbons are aged for as little as three months. Uh, straight bourbon also can't be, uh, you know, can't, can't contain, excuse me, any added colors, flavors, or other spirits. Blended bourbon uh, can contain all of that as long as it's at least 51% straight bourbon. As with all whiskeys, it's really hard to say it tastes uh, what it tastes like because, uh, you know, there's a lot of variety and flavor profiles between distillers. The main characteristics, however, are sweetness and smoke. The sweet comes from corn. Sweet, sweet, high fructose, uh, fructose candy-making corn sugar. The most sugary of sugary whiskey ingredients. The smokiness comes from the fact that to make bourbon, you have to pay an old man with no teeth, squinty eyes, and a rap sheet that includes time for moonshine distillation, who goes by either Pappy, Slappy, or Skeeter, to chain smoke, unfiltered hand-rolled cigarettes in front of a bourbon barrel for no less than eight hours a day. And of course, that's not true. The smokiness comes from the legally mandated aging time in charred oak barrels. Uh, where bourbon comes from is a fact lost to history. It was born out of a variety of immigrants to the U.S. who found themselves needing to do something with the plentiful crop of corn in the New World. Scots, Irish, other Europeans, but mostly Scots and Irish, who settled and, famed and farmed the American South during the late 1700s and early 1800s brought knowledge of distilling with them from the old countries. They started making whiskey using old world techniques and new world corn-based mash. Some of these early entrepreneurs, uh, Jacob Beam, Elijah Craig, and Evan Williams. Yes, Jacob Beam of the Jim Beam family. A uh, bourbon was probably either named for Bourbon Country, or I'm sorry, Bourbon County, Kentucky, or some say a Baptist preacher slash American hero first made the stuff, or Bourbon Street, New Orleans. The whiskey uh, that was shipped down to Mississippi enjoyed a boom in NOLA as an alternative to French cognac. Cognac brandy is made from the uh, cognac region of France. And brandy is a distilled spirit that can be made from a variety of fruit, but mostly from grapes. Its name comes from the Dutch term for burnt wine. Uh, both Bourbon Street and Bourbon County take their names from the House of Bourbon, a European royal house of French origin. Did you know that Justin Bieber is descended from the House of Bourbon? He's not. Did you know that Dr. Bounty Hunter is descended from the House of Bourbon? He's not either. But King Henry IV of France was. So was King Louis XIV and King Louis XV. Uh, back to bourbon, the first advertisement for bourbon that we know of was printed in the Western Citizen newspaper in Paris, Kentucky in 1821. Did you know that Paris, Kentucky is the home of the Dan Cummins car dealership? That is true. Not related to a discussion of whiskey, but he has the same name and he's the reason I don't have uh, dancummins.com for a website. I have dancummins.tv because that son of a bitch got there first and it's annoyed me for well over a decade. They sell Dodges, Chevys, and Buicks, but not Fords, which is unfortunate. And they have a radio jingle that has haunted my dreams for years. Here, why don't you, why don't you have a, a listen to this little gem? Now let me tell you exactly how I feel. I'd rather drive to Paris for a Dan Cummins deal. That Paris road is finished now, you can call it what you will. Uh -huh. They told Dan Cummins he could name it if he'd pay the bill. Hell yeah. But $90 million is an awful lot to pay. <laughs> it is. So you can call it what you want, it's still Dan Cummins' way. <laughs> okay. Now let me tell you exactly how I feel. I'd rather drive to Paris for a Dan Cummins deal. Oh, wow. I have not gotten that completely out of my head. 
for about 15 years. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, they currently have multiple uh, variations of new Silverados and a lifetime powertrain warranty, if you're interested. Right there in Paris, Kentucky. The real Paris. <laughs> yeah. Uh, two years after uh, bourbon first appeared in that Paris newspaper, in 1823, Dr. James C. Crow, yes, of old Crow infamy, that ditch wine, developed what is uh, now known as Sour Mash, the Pepper Distillery, now the Woodford Reserve Distillery. Uh, that new Sour Mash method of recycling some yeast for the next fermentation revolutionized the way most bourbons and Tennessee whiskeys have been produced since. Uh, the Samuels family claims the title of the oldest bourbon family, still going strong. T.W. Samuels, grandson of Robert Samuels, who created the secret family recipe, came along and constructed a distillery at Samuels Depot, Kentucky, that the family made a business uh, out of, or they made a business out of bourbon there. In 1844, T.W. turned his father's little distillery in Deetsville, Kentucky, into a large commercial operation. It was called T.W. Samuels and Son Distillery. Uh, 1943, Bill Samuels Sr. burned a famous family recipe, literally burned it. He was done with it. Seems extreme. Seems like he also didn't think about how valuable collectibles could be. Uh, like how valuable the original bourbon recipe for Maker's Mark be. That's, that's the Maker's Mark family. Uh, bourbon without bitterness. The company is now in the hands of his son, Bill Samuels Jr., who continues the Maker's Mark family bourbon tradition today. Uh, next up, we have Tennessee whiskey. Tennessee whiskey is straight bourbon that's made in Tennessee with an extra filtering process. So basically, it's just bourbon. Uh, Tennessee whiskey distillers don't identify as bourbon though because fuck Kentucky! They ain't, they ain't better. They ain't better than us. I know I'm from Idaho, but in this unnecessary vignette, I'm now from Tennessee. Stay with me. I see you're Louisville, and I raise you in Nashville. Tennessee, Vegas, motherfucker. Mic drop. Sure, you got bluegrass. But we are the volunteer state, which sounded cooler in my head than when I said that shit out loud. Okay, moving on. Uh, I have no idea why Tennessee whiskey distillers don't identify as bourbon. Uh, you know, what they make is bourbon since it has all the same hallmarks uh, of bourbon. The corn, the oak, it's all there. Uh, they do have, a, you know, that little extra distill that filtering process, the Lincoln County process, they call it. It's essentially a charcoal filtering technique born out of Lincoln County, Tennessee. It filters impurities and jumpstarts the aging process. Some say that any tasting differences between regular bourbon, bourbon and Tennessee whiskey uh, are due more to differences in the mash makeup than this filtering process. Mash being the, the mix of grains used to make bourbon, the shit other than corn, which is mostly rye and wheat. Love rye. Love a good rye bread. Love a good rye whiskey. All this whiskey talk. Uh, all this whiskey learning. Making me want to pick up another bottle of bullet rye whiskey. Uh, bullet, not an old family recipe. That was first distilled in 1987. Uh, big time Tennessee whiskey distillers, Jack Daniels, George Dickel, used very little rye in their mash. Less than most bourbon distillers. Uh, Dickel whiskey, that's good stuff. Who doesn't like tossing some Dickel into the back of their throat? Who doesn't like putting a little Dickel in their mouth? You get it. You know I couldn't just move on from that name in a rational, mature fashion. Uh, filtering process or no? Was gonna, uh, that's going to majorly affect the taste of the finished product compared to a mash that uses more rye. Uh, let's talk about rye whiskey now more. American rye whiskey, next on America's whiskey list. This is whiskey that meets all the same requirements as bourbon, but with 51% rye instead of corn. Pretty simple. It had a resurgence in popularity recently because it's fucking delicious. Lots of contemporary spirit critics are singing the merits of this particularly spicy bourbon cousin and legendary rye enthusiast and Mad Men character Don Draper. Uh, helped popularize a good rye whiskey. Before Prohibition, rye was America's boozy go-to. It was easy to produce. Like we said, George Washington himself made rye whiskey at Mount Vernon. Uh, rye whiskey was historically the prevalent whiskey in the Northeastern states, uh, especially Pennsylvania and Maryland. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania was the center of rye whiskey production in the late 1700s, early 1800s. By 1808, Allegheny County, 
Pennsylvania farmers were selling a half barrel for each man, woman, and child in the country. The U.S. was making millions of gallons of rye whiskey. And then the dark days of prohibition put it all to a stop. Womp, womp, womp. Took rye whiskey a long, long time after prohibition ended to finally recover. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a harder sell to some than bourbon because it replaces the sweetness of corn with that fiery spice of rye. Uh, similar rules to bourbon govern American rye. It has to be at least 51% rye. At least 80 proof, but no more than 160 proof and aged in new charred oak barrels. Straight rye has to be aged for at least two years. Uh, Canadian whiskey is often referred to as rye whiskey because historically much of the content was from rye. Uh, but to be labeled Canadian rye whiskey, a spirit can contain as little as basically 0% rye. So the distinction doesn't really mean anything other than it's just whiskey made in Canada, at least according to the sources we found. Uh, lots of famous American cocktails traditionally use rye whiskey like the Manhattan, the Old Fashioned, Sazerac, all classics based on rye. Uh, Sazerac, the cocktail of New Orleans, rye whiskey, absinthe, sugar cube, and some Peychaud's bitters. Peychaud's bitters originally created by an apothecary in New Orleans back in the early 1800s, first made as medicine. Has a, has a bit of a licorice taste to it, like a, a licorice medicinal taste. A lot of different kinds of alcohol, once prescribed as medicine by somebody. Uh, rounding off the Western Hemisphere's contribution to the world of whiskey, it's worth mentioning the considerable market of white whiskeys and so-called moonshines. <laughs> you know what goes really well with moonshine? An air banjo jamboree. Moonshine, moonshine, for my soul is sunshine. Ping dong ding 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 ding. Ping dong ding 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 ding. Moonshine, moonshine, not too much or I'll go blind. Ping dong ding, ding dong ding, ding dong ding dong ding dong ding. Moonshine, moonshine, it's like a liquid landmine. Ping dong ding, ding dong ding, ping dong ding dong ding dong ding. Moonshine, moonshine, long term use can sometimes even lead to lead poisoning because of the poor equipment it's distilled in, and you generally just drink it to get drunk. And if you're just drinking to get drunk, you're probably running from your problems instead of facing them. And due to the rural impoverished areas where moonshine is made, you probably dealing with multi-generational poverty and the cycle is damn hard to break out of and moonshine helps in the short term but makes things worse in the long term because it never solves your problems it just keeps you facing them which then makes them worse over time which makes you want to drink more to escape them which leads to all kinds of health problems and terrible decisions which makes the likelihood that you'll solve your problem somewhere between not going to happen and highly fucking doubt it so moonshine moonshine you fucking killing me in my mind bring tank 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 ah sorry about that a little moonshine hillbilly diddy got a Got too real. Got too sad towards the end. Seriously now. Uh, what makes up the market? Of, I'm insane. Uh, what makes up the market of white whiskeys and so-called moonshines? Well, if it's uh, in a store with a label and a barcode, it's actually not moonshine. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, <laughs> moonshine, moonshine is defined as whiskey or other strong alcoholic drinks made or sold illegally. With that definition, it may be confusing to walk into a liquor store or a Costco and find booze labeled as moonshine. But that's just, that's just marketing. That's not a definition of what it actually is. Uh, I bought some Idaho moonshine at the liquor store right down the street on East Sherman here in CDA. Not going to lie. Not my favorite whiskey. Uh, not very smooth. Uh, you can call a whiskey moonshine without it officially, you know, being classified as whiskey. Just like you could call a candy bar uh, crack. It doesn't have any crack in it. Uh, crack candy, though. That would be a, that'd be a moneymaker. Uh, interestingly, there are literally no rules to designate a certain liquor as moonshine except for the fact that it's made illegally with just no tax licenses or trappings of organized liquor trade. So moonshine doesn't have to have any ingredients in common uh, or, or use uh, of a certain barrel or just, you know, whatever. Uh, like vodka, it can be made from anything fermentable. Fruit, sugar, grain, even milk. Blech. Milk vodka. Sounds delish. Uh, like vodka, there's no upper limit on its alcohol content. Uh, unless you want to describe it as white whiskey on the label, you can make it any way you please. Term moonshine has been around since the late 15th century, uh, first used to refer 
you know, to uh, to liquor. Well, it's that whole thing we talked about earlier with Scotland. Uh, America, particularly the Appalachian region, has a rich history of moonshining that shaped the economy, culture, and identity of the thirsty hamlets where it boomed and bloomed. Uh, if you ever have the opportunity to sample local under-the-radar wares, do so at your own risk. I did once. I tried some uh, some moonshine from back in, like, uh, Arkansas, I think, many years ago when I was on tour with Larry the Cable Guy because, of course, that's when it happened. <laughs> of course, a fan of Larry the Cable Guy was like, I got some, I got some moonshine. Uh, someone gave his tour manager some real backwoods distilled moonshine and gave me a shot, and holy shit, that burned. It was like drinking fire. If you're familiar with moonshine, uh, you're probably familiar with tales of people drinking it and going blind. Stories of people drinking moonshine and going blind aren't totally unfounded. They're exaggerated, but not unfounded. That's fun. Uh, methanol, otherwise known as methyl alcohol or wood alcohol, is found in tiny amounts in good whiskey, and there can be a lot of it in cheap, not properly made whiskey. Uh, whiskey that makes Old Crow look like top shelf whiskey, and it can damage the optic nerve, and it, it can even kill you in high concentrations, but it's rare. Also, there have been health risks associated with moonshine, other health risks. Uh, sometimes purveyors fashion stills out of whatever was handy, like a car radiator, radiator, not kidding. In addition to corn or wheat base, you know, you get some notes of lead and antifreeze. Because it's not regulated at all, you can end up drinking shit that's closer to paint thinner than it is to good whiskey. Uh, here's some interesting moonshine-related trivia. Don't confuse moonshiners with bootleggers. Moonshiners make the liquor. Bootleggers smuggle it. The term bootlegger uh, refers to the habit of hiding flasks in the boot tops around the 1880s. And then with the introduction of cars, it became uh, uh, came to mean anybody who smuggled booze. Mechanics quickly found ways to soup up engines and modify cars to hide and transport as much moonshine as possible. Getting a real Dukes of Hazard vibe right now. Dukes of Hazard theme song in my head right now. Which thankfully is replacing the moonshine, moonshine, and the let me tell you exactly how I feel. Uh, <laughs> in, in running from the law, these whiskey runners acquired some serious driving skills. And on their off days, they'd race against each other, a pastime that would eventually become NASCAR. How interesting is that? Bootlegging moonshine is closely linked to NASCAR. A moonshiner gave seed money for NASCAR to its founder, Bill France. Now white whiskey, on the other hand, is just any whiskey that hasn't been aged. It's essentially a raw, unfinished product on its way to becoming a full-grown-up whiskey. But distilleries have turned to white whiskey in recent years to compete with clear alcohol like vodka, which dominates that market. Uh, white whiskey is what you're seeing most of the time in stores that call it moonshine. Sold by brands that use the moonshine label as a gimmicky sales tactic. These whiskeys typically have a strong corn or grain flavor and aren't as smoky or, or mellow as their brown-aged cousins. Now on to Scotch whiskey, which is, you guessed it, whiskey made in Scotland. Yep, uh, it's, it's also a whiskey made with water, malted barley, plus other whole grains, yeast, caramel coloring, and nothing else. Them be the rules. Commercial distilleries in Scotland began introducing whiskey made from wheat and rye in the late 18th century. It's aged at least three years in oak casks and bottled at 80 proof or higher. Any age statement on a bottle of Scotch whiskey must reflect the age of the youngest whiskey used to produce that product. A whiskey with an age statement is known as a guaranteed age whiskey. A whiskey without an age statement is known as a no-age statement, NAS whiskey, the only guarantee being that all the whiskey contained in that bottle is at least three years old. Another important distinction with Scotch whiskey is that the Scots traditionally, traditionally omit the E in their spelling of whiskey. That's why sometimes you see whiskey with an E, sometimes without an E. Uh, as of 2018, there were 133 Scotch whiskey distilleries operating in Scotland. Even more so than bourbon, it's hard to talk about Scotch as a single entity. Making Scotch whiskey is an old science. First written record of it goes back to uh, 1494 from some of those uh, distill-loving drunk monks. This was that record. To Friar John Cor by order of the king to make aquavite. 
Eight bowls of malt. The Exchequer Rolls of Scotland. First June, 1494. Uh, the Exchequer Rolls were records of royal income and expenditure. And the quote records eight bowls of malt given to Friar John Core to make acrovite over the previous year. Uh, a bowl is the rounded seed capsule of certain plants, by the way. Uh, Scotch whiskey. That's fun to say. Uh, grew very popular in that region. It was a favorite beverage of King James IV of Scotland. There are five major regions of Scotland that produce the stuff, all of which have distinct flavors. There are two basic types of Scotch whiskey from which all blends are made. That feels like it's not bad. I, uh, I just pulled that out of my ass. I feel like the, uh, out of my shitty accents, that wasn't, that wasn't the worst. A uh, single malt scotch must have been distilled at a single distillery using a pot still distillation process made from a mash of balted marley. Single grain scotch whiskey is a scotch whiskey distilled at a single distillery, but in addition to water and malted barley, it may involve whole grains of other malted or unmalted cereals. So much, so much malt talk makes me want to eat a Whopper. You guys like Whoppers? I do. All of these distilleries produce differently flavored scotch whiskeys, but there are a few commonalities. Scotch flavor profile is a little more challenging than that of a typical bourbon, but it could also be said to be more complex, especially when you start cataloging uh, differences between single and blended malts, single casks and grains. They get, all, they get all fancy with their, you know, limited things they can do with it. Overall, you can expect a lot of smokiness and something the whiskey nerds call peatiness. You want some serious peatiness, you get the bottle of Lagavulin. Uh, single malt scotch. Our art warlock Logan Keith gave me as a gift. Uh, the preferred whiskey of Ron Swanson. Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec. Uh, that shit has some serious flavor for real. That's real smoky. I love it, but not for everyone. It is the only thing I have ever drank where Lindsay does not want to be anywhere near me when I drink it. Just the smell alone, like it truly disgusts her. The odor is so pungent. She can smell me drinking it from about 30 feet away. Uh, peat is a mossy accumulation of compressed, decaying plant material. Yum! And peaty is a word used to describe the wide range of flavors its combustion provides depending on how uh, or where it's harvested. So peatiness is sort of an aromatic, smoky, herbal, dark, or even nutty flavor. Uh, peaty, uh, peat is a plant that grows all over Scotland and it's a big part of the distilling process. Grains are dried over smoldering peat fires. So the smoke gets in the whiskey and contributes a very earthy flavor. Okay, two more Japanese whiskey. And then we finally focus this episode on Jameson with Irish whiskey. Uh, Japanese whiskey is just a catch all term for any whiskey made in Japan. Makes sense. Uh, what started as a novelty is now some of the best whiskey in the world. Uh, in the 1920s, a businessman named Shinjiro, uh, Torhi, uh, started a whiskey distillery in Yamazaki, a suburb of Kyoto that had incredibly pure water. He had already been importing Western liquor and he later created a brand called uh, Akadama Port Wine based on Portuguese wine, which made him a successful merchant, but he wasn't satisfied and he turned his sights to whiskey. Understanding his ingredients and staff uh, had to be the very best for a satisfactory product. Tori uh, hired uh, Masata excuse me, Masataka uh, Takatsuro as his distillery executive. And Takatsuro had lived and trained in Scotland. And he brought his knowledge of Scotch distilling with him to Japan. Uh, the first Westerners to taste Japanese whiskey were soldiers of the American Expeditionary Force Siberia who took shore leave in Hakodate in September, 1918. Those soldiers were over there meddling a bit in that Russian civil war that led to the end of the Russian czars and the beginning of communism. Over there trying to stop the Bolsheviks from taking over, but they, you know, not enough troops were sent over to make a difference. Uh, but this isn't about the Bolsheviks. It's about whiskey. What is Japanese whiskey? Well, there's a growing range of options. It's safe to basically think uh, of Japanese whiskey as just scotch. that just happens to be made in Japan instead of Scotland. Uh, same ingredients. 
Uh, Centauri and uh, Nika are the brands you're most likely to see here in the States. Both produce blended and single malt varieties as well as blended malt whiskeys, just like their Scottish counterparts. So Japanese whiskey is, is just scotch. Uh, last is today's focus, Irish whiskey, aka whiskey made in Sweden. I mean Nigeria. I mean Ireland. I would love it if for some reason it was made in Sweden or Nigeria. No one had a good explanation. Uh, even though the stuff is made very, very close to Scotland, the rules governing its production are pretty different. They're a little more uh, relaxed. If it's aged for three years and it's made in Ireland, then dab nab it, it's Irish whiskey. That's pretty much it in terms of rules. Irish whiskey enjoyed an extreme uh, uh, popularity in the U.S. until Prohibition ruined the market, effectively closed many Irish distilleries. The Irish War of Independence fought between 1919 to 1921, and then the subsequent Irish Civil War fought between 1922 and 1923 did not help. And then there was a trade war with Britain that cut off whiskey exports to Britain and all Commonwealth countries that also did not help. Uh, Irish whiskey's biggest, you know, market. Trade was disrupted all over the place, shutting down more Irish distilleries and distributors. Uh, just a few, just a handful were still open by 1960. In 1966, a couple of distilleries pooled their resources into becoming the Irish distillers, figuring it would be better to sink together than go out of business one by one. And Irish distillers uh, distilled Jameson. Uh, at that time, only about 500,000 cases were being produced, down from 12 million cases in 1900. Since the, since the 1980s, there's been a resurgence in Irish whiskey. It's now one of the fastest growing spirits in the world. Okay, now that we have all this whiskey knowledge in our, in our minds, now let's meet the founder of Jameson Whiskey, Terry Juniper Tweedle. Kidding, John Jameson. Uh, Terry Juniper Tweedle sounds like someone who opened a candy, soda, and wooden toy shop back in around 1910. Right, someone with a handlebar mustache who wears Lederhosen, even though he's not German or in Germany. He just thinks it's, he just thinks it's fun. He just thinks it's kooky. Uh, because Jameson is the, the Irish whiskey for many, it's hard to swallow that John Jameson was actually dun, dun, da, a Scotsman. Even worse, he was also Presbyterian, not Catholic. So rough start. And before I really introduce Jameson and establish who the Jameson clan is and head into the cannibalism expedition, this seems like the least disruptive place in today's suck for a sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? 
Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck rocketmoney.com slash time suck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thank you for listening. Now let's really meet the Jameson founder. Uh, Jameson was born in Aloha, Scotland. I, I always want to say Aloha. I have to really pause that word. Aloha, Scotland. You've heard of it. It's where Hawaii and Scotland touch. No, uh, Aloha, Scotland, on October 5th, 1740, into a seafaring family. He'd later serve as sheriff clerk for the county of, oh boy, I tried this. I got the pronunciation guide. This is a, this is a high-level word. Clackmanenshire. I should have said it in a Scottish accent. Then I couldn't. He, he was a sheriff clerk for the county of Clackmanenshire. Sina uh, Metu meaning without fear or without fear uh, of the unknown in Latin was the Jameson family motto awarded for their bravery in battling pirates in the 1500s. Pretty badass family motto. 
wish my family had a motto, like a cool motto. Um, we don't have one. If my dad got to pick the family motto, it would probably be something like, don't ask me where I've been. I won't have to add one more corpse to the body pile or something. You know, I don't know. JK, a long running gag if you're new. If my mom got to pick our family motto, uh, or if it was based on my mom accurately, it would be worry about everything and live in constant fear. <laughs> Not JK, actually. Oh, mom. Queen of the worry warts. Uh, in 1768, John Jameson married into whiskey. He married Margaret Haig, eldest daughter of John Haig and his wife, Margaret Stein. And the couple had 16 children. Yikes. Though only 10 survived to adulthood because fuck 1768. And Margaret was early whiskey royalty. Most historians describe the Steins uh, uh, and Margaret was descended from as a great whiskey dynasty responsible for a major portion of the total output of Scotch whiskey in the 18th century. The Steins not only revolutionized both the Scottish and Irish whiskey industries, but they were uh, without a doubt some of the greatest Scottish industrialists of their time. The distilleries founded by the Steins were the largest manufacturing undertaking of any kind to emerge during the first decade of the Industrial Revolution in Scotland and Ireland. And they got their start much earlier, the earliest reference to the Steins, in Clackmannan, Clackmannan, there we go, uh, in the Clackmannan area dates back to around 1200. The family was one of privilege. They owned farmland at uh, Creighton and also at Greenyards on the far bank of the River Forth. At some point, historians think maybe after the Kinnetpans Abbey was dissolved, the Steins extended their land holdings to include the former abbey, where they learned the art of distilling from the friars. Hell yeah, they did. Come on, friar shit-faced. Show me that whiskey. Andrew Stein, born in 1672, first established a commercial distillery at Kinnetpans in the 1720s. By 1733, Kinnetpans was the largest distillery in Scotland. At that point, it was run by Andrew's son, John Stein Sr. John Sr. soon set his sights in the Irish market. John Sr. founded the now famous Bow, or Bow excuse me, Street Distillery in 1780. In the same year, he purchased another Dublin distillery, Marrowbone Lane. Both had become vast manufacturing plants, even by today's standards. The Steins weren't content to use the same old distilling methods. They wanted to bring whiskey manufacturing to a scale never before seen in Scotland. To that end, they were open to any new technology they thought might benefit distilling. And one of those pieces of technology ended up being something of their own invention, something called the continuous st uh, still. Many say they still don't get credit for this still uh, to this day. An extract from the Philosophical Magazine published in 1798 stated the improvements that may have taken place in the common distillery business in Scotland within these few years are such as cannot fail to excite the wonder of men of science. In 1828, Robert Stein, one of the John Jr.'s or John Sr.'s children, patented a continuous still that fed wash through a series of interconnected pots. Piston strokes were used to vaporize the wash and feed it into a horizontal cylinder, which was divided into a series of compartments using cloth. Stein still uh, offered improved fuel efficiency compared with the traditional pot still. It was the first continuous still to be employed commercially in Scotland. However, as the still did not allow for siphoning off of the pungent fusel oils, the spirit produced was not highly purified and the machine needed to be stopped frequently for cleaning. But they were still producing whiskey on a never-before-seen scale. Uh, with distilling more whiskey came more problems, mostly keeping these vast plants supplied with the raw materials required. This led to massive changes to farming in the surrounding areas. The whole of central Scotland's infrastructure had to be re-examined. The Steins commissioned huge engineering projects from building roads to canals to tramways. Uh, they were literally reshaping the world around them to make more whiskey. The Steins were ambitious, and that ambition would get them in a couple of tight spots, sometimes with custom agents, sometimes with London gin merchants, or a variety of other actors they had to cut across to get their product out there. Steins frequently attempted to avoid regulations. Uh, for example, they often distilled on the Sabbath when excise or custom, uh, you know, customs officers were not on duty. 
Uh, when excise officers attempted to use hydrometers to measure the spirit strength accurately, the Steins would accuse the excise officers of trespass, have them escorted from the premises. That's certainly one way to stop an inspection. I wish you could do that with inspectors here in the States. Hey, Mr. Cummins, I'm Dale Hahn with Workman's Comp here in Idaho to do a little unannounced inspection of your studio. Mr. Hahn, this is private property. You can take your inspection the fuck out of this building before I shoot you for trespassing. Go on now, get! Ah, I don't think that would work. The Steins were uh, regarded as royalty when it came to distilling, and they tried to keep their grip on the whiskey throne and control the whiskey market by controlling and destroying the other distillers around them. The Steins would bankroll the Hagues and Jamesons to enable them to flourish in the whiskey business, but flourish under their thumbs. Uh, you know, flourish by giving them high interest loans. When William Haig of the Segi Distillery went into liquidation, it was revealed he owed John Stein Jr. 42,000 pounds, equivalent to about 8 million pounds today. Steins controlled numerous non-family distilleries in Scotland through complex agreements involving supplying credit and capital. They made a fortune off of loans. And if anyone they were bankrolling stepped out of line, the Steins could be as, as ruthless as the most celebrated mafiosos. When whiskey exports to England stagnated in the early 19th century, the Steins, and by now their financially independent cousins, the Hagues, threw around lots of bribe money, paid smaller distillers not to compete with them when selling to England. They bought up and dismantled smaller struggling distilleries. The Steins and Hagues became pretty unpopular with other Scottish distillers, and they didn't give a fuck because they were rich. They were the Starbucks or Amazon or Walmart of the Scottish whiskey trade, squashing the competition however they could to control the marketplace. They controlled the Scottish whiskey industry until the mid-19th century. Hard to trace the, uh, John, the Stein's involvement in distilling after the closure of John Stein's Sudbury Distillery in 1856. Now to the Jameson family. After John Jameson was married to Margaret Haig, both a Haig and a Stein, John moved with his family to Ireland. There, John joined the Convivial Lodge Number 202 of the Dublin Freemasons on June 24th, 1774. So Illuminati, the reptilians... Deemed him a whiskey baron. Uh, no, while a lot of people think that John founded the famous Jameson Bow Street Distillery, he started as an employee of John Stein Jr., Margaret's brother. He was soon appointed general manager of one of, the, of, one of several distilleries in Dublin's Smithfield district. John Jameson later declared that he had erected the distillery in 1805 when he appears to have become sole proprietor, though this would seem in reality to have been the date of expansion and modernization, not the founding. Uh, Carol Quinn, company archivist at Irish Distillers, writes, in 1805, John Jameson was joined by his son, John Jameson II, who took over the family business that year. And for the next 41 years, he drove the business forward before handing over to his son, John Jameson III, in 1851. In 1901, the company was formally incorporated as John Jameson and Sons Limited. And as part of a prospectus issue the following year, published a brief history of the firm, noting a distillery was in existence in Bow Street in the year 1780. Around 1780, John Stein Jr. acquired a distillery in Marrowborn Lane, Marrowbone Lane, and it appears that John Jameson's son, William, married Stein's daughter, Isabella, going to take over the going on to take over the company, which was trading under the name William Jameson and Company by 1822. Good old cousin marriage. And now there are two Jameson distilleries. Jameson versus Jameson. And the two Jameson distilleries were major trading rivals, especially as they were two of uh, what were often referred to as the big four of Irish whiskey. John Jameson and Son, George Rowan Company, John Power and Son, and William Jameson and Company. John Jameson operated Bow Street to the highest standards, bolstering the reputation of Dublin distillers, who were thought of as the makers of the finest pure pot still whiskey. Jameson purchased only the finest grain, sometimes paying farmers in advance to grow cereals for him. He also followed all stages of the production process with great attention to detail. He also seemed to have been a pretty good boss. Jameson's employees received above average wages. He started the tradition of giving his workers nicknames. Uh, when one of his coopers, William McCann, posed to admire himself as reflection in a window, 
He was from then on entered into company records as Gorgeous Gus McCann. Jameson himself uh, ended up with the nickname Glorious John, a nickname given to him by a close circle of friends and family that would uh, attend his magnificent Dublin parties. Am I related to this guy? Right? I'm Scott Irish. I love nicknames. Just ask the artist formerly known as Micropene, Reverend Dr. Joe Horscock Johnson Paisley. We, we love a good nickname here. Uh, when the whiskey was ready to be put away for aging, John Jameson ordered the excavation of cellars on the distillery site to provide cool, moist conditions optimal for whiskey aging. He also allowed it to remain in casks for much longer than many of his competitors to ensure the highest quality spirit. He wasn't making that old crow. His legendary status would exist even during his lifetime, which John bolstered by commissioning the artist Henry Rayburn to paint portraits of himself and his wife, Margaret. Today, these portraits hang in the National Gallery of Ireland, Dublin. Uh, Jameson died on December 3rd, 1823, by which time the Jamesons were firmly established as the country's leading whiskey family, the first family of Irish whiskey. In the Lost Distilleries of Ireland, Brian Townsend declares that John Jameson was arguably the single main driving force behind the success of the Irish whiskey industry in the 19th century, and his industry was a behemoth. Uh, distillery chronicler Alfred Bernard visited Bow Street during 1886 and noted, the distillery covers upwards of five acres of ground. The warehouses belonging to the distillery usually contain about 25,000 casks of whiskey. 300 men are employed on the works, and it is a notable fact that the operatives are never turned away except for misconduct. We notice many hale and hearty old men. One old veteran was over 86 years of age. The annual output of the famous distillery is about 1 million gallons. A million gallons a year. That's a lot of hangovers. John Jameson and son would later, much later, lose their independence with the formation of the Irish Distillers Group in 1966. And then two years after that, that's when Jameson was first sold in bottled form. I was surprised by that. Rather than buy the cask, the publicans and bonders. All the money made back in the, in the, in the early days of Jameson was not uh, money made through slick marketing campaigns and selling it by the bottle. No one was going anywhere and buying a bottle of Jameson because that just didn't exist. It was sold by the cask. Uh, and it was sold, uh, you know, like you had to go to the, the bar to get it, basically. It was sold to publicans and bonders. Bonders were people who took the distilled whiskey and blended it and often aged it further and bottled it and sold it to publicans or pub owners and to grocers and to other shop owners since big distilleries weren't really known as brands yet. Uh, the Bow Street Distillery was the second, uh, last, uh, second last to close in Dublin, finally falling in 1971, five years before the doors shut on its great historical rival, the Johns Lane Distillery of James Power & Son. Since 1975, all Jameson whiskey has been produced at Irish Distillers' vast combined pot still and grain distillery in County Cork. Though much of the Bow Street Distillery site has now been redeveloped, it remains home to the hugely popular Jameson Distillery Bow Street Visitor Experience. So you can go there. And then just a few years back in 2018, with the launch of Jameson 18-year-old cask strength whiskey, uh, whiskey maturation returned to Dublin. John Jameson himself would surely have been pleased with this development just as he would be happy to see Dublin beginning to regain some of its traditional status as a center of whiskey making excellence. It's coming back. Okay, enough random whiskey details. Now we've gotten kind of whiskey nerdy here. Did you almost forget this suck was about cannibalism? I did. Uh, <laughs> did not think when the spacers would pick this topic, I would use it as an excuse to, uh, you know, learn a lot about spirits. Been drinking whiskey a long time, didn't really know shit about it other than bourbon was made in Kentucky and scotch was made in Scotland. Now I know that not all bourbon is even made in Kentucky. Uh, Hail Nimrod and thank you for the whiskey knowledge. Now let's head to 1866, right? The darkest chapter in Jameson's history. Big pivot here. Uh, let's explore allegations that one of John Jameson's direct descendants, his great-grandson, seems to have commissioned uh, some cannibalism while on an African expedition, which is not a normal thing to do. 
In the late 19th century in Europe, it was fashionable for rich young men who didn't have a lot of responsibilities to tag along on adventures like expeditions. Because, you know, why not? If you weren't actually running the operations of some big whiskey distillery, uh, you had a lot of money, you had to buy your way onto, into some very interesting vacations of sorts. Have some cool shit to talk to your rich friends about. Must have been fun to be able to live that life. And that's the life James Jameson was living in 1886 when he bought his way onto the Amin Pasha Relief Expedition. James Jameson. What a bummer of a name. Same first and last name. Old Jimmy James Jameson. Uh, this expedition he went on, the one he died on, was one of the last major European expeditions into the interior of Africa in the 19th century. It was launched supposedly to save a man known as Amin Pasha, uh, who was the governor of some territory that Britain and Egypt basically co-governed. It's a little complicated. Uh, a place called Equatoria, what is now South Sudan, in what is now South Sudan. Some, uh, some local Sufi Muslims did not want Egypt and through Egypt, Britain to rule them. And there was a revolt. And an expedition was launched to save Amin Pasha before rebels killed him. And also to maybe see if some kind of agreement could be reached that would allow England and Egypt to keep a foothold in that part of Central Africa. It's actually uh, very, very complicated and pretty dry, but that's the gist. Uh, the man who led the expedition Jameson went on was Henry Morton Stanley. Henry Morton Stanley. His original name was John Rowlands. His Congolese name was Bula Matari, Breaker of Rocks. Noise. Mr. Rockbreaker was born on January 28, 1841 in Denby, Denbyshire. <laughs> not making it up. Denby, Denbyshire, Wales. Sounds like a made-up place, but it is not. I checked. And he died May 10th, 1904 in London. In between this, uh, <laughs> that, that, that sounds like one of the sing-songy bullshit though, things I would come up with. In between those handful of decades was quite the life, including an expedition that went very wrong. Uh, let's look at Henry starting with his birth. A little quick overview of Henry. Henry's mother, Elizabeth Perry, was 18 years old when Henry was born. She abandoned him as a very young baby, cut off all communication. So fun, sweet mom. Stanley never knew his dad. His dad died within a few weeks of his birth. The stigma of his legitimacy weighed on him all his life. His birth certificate even said bastard, which was common at the time, but still had to sting. Uh, makes me think of Game of Thrones, Jon Snow. Uh, he was brought up by his maternal grandfather, Moses Perry, a butcher. And then Moses would die when Henry John was five. He then stayed with families of cousins and nieces for uh, a little time here, a little time there, before eventually being sent to the St. Asaph Union Workhouse for the Poor. It sounds like a fucking terrible place, and it was. The overcrowding, the lack of supervision resulted in him being frequently abused by older boys, and the headmaster of the workhouse, uh, the headmaster sexually abused Henry John, so holy shit. This poor guy's childhood is starting to feel like a Steph Cox curvy fodder, uh, like the upbringing of a serial killer. Rollins immigrated to the U.S. in 1859 at the age of 18, where he met Henry Hope Stanley, a wealthy trader. He asked Henry Hope Stanley if he needed any help with his business in the typical British style, apparently literally asking him, do you need a boy, sir? Very creepy question to ask people now, but I guess it was not creepy at the time. <laughs> Can you imagine approaching some business owner when you're a teenager? You just asked him, do you need a boy, sir? Do you need a girl, sir? And then having them answer, yes, yes, I do need a boy. A boy would do nicely. Been wanting myself a boy for quite some time. Yeek. Uh, John Henry didn't know it, but Henry Hope Stanley was childless and had long wished for a son. So their professional relationship quickly became like a close, more familial one. And out of admiration, John took Stanley's name, which is pretty adorable. Uh, he then served in the American Civil War on the side of the Confederacy. And then during the Battle of Shiloh in 1862, was taken prisoner by the North and then joined the Union Army. And then soon fell ill and was discharged. So what a journey this dude had. Bounced around Britain for 18 years, makes it to America, then serves for both the South and the North in the Civil War. He then joined the U.S. Navy, where he became a record keeper on board the USS Minnesota, which led him into freelance journalism, because why not? 
This guy was a say yes kind of guy, guy, you know, just "Ah, sure. I'll try it. Then he'd adventure his way into a whole mess of expeditions, including uh, to the Ottoman empire where he was briefly taken prisoner. That was not fun. I'm sure. Uh, Then to Spain where he wrote about the revolution taking place there. Uh, He made his first expedition to Africa in 1871 to Zanzibar. He was sent to find the Scottish missionary, David Livingstone, who had completely lost contact with the outside world for six years. Uh, only one of Livingstone's 44 letter dispatches made it to Zanzibar. One surviving letter to Horace Waller was made public in 2010. And it says, I am terribly knocked up, but this is for your own eye only doubtful. I will live to see you again, but he did live. And Henry Morton Stanley was the one who found him. He found Livingstone in the town of Ujiji on the shores of Lake, uh, big word again, uh, Tanganyika on November 10th, 1871, greeting him with the now very famous words, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. Nice. Henry Morton Stanley is that guy. The guy who said, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. A lot of people found that quote pretty funny because first off, Livingstone was the only other white person for hundreds of miles. So of course it was him. Also, people laughed at Henry Morton Stanley's attempt to appear dignified by making a formal greeting after traveling through the bush for week after week after week. Uh, After finding Dr. Livingstone, Henry Morton Stanley uh, returned to England, wrote a book about his experiences, How I Found Livingstone, Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, and that made him a huge celebrity. And then in the uh, 1880s, uh, Stanley worked for King Leopold II, leading numerous expeditions for the profiteering Belgian monarch. Stanley was contracted to map out some trade routes for Leopold. Then he quickly realized that Leopold basically wanted him to carve out an entire nation. When Leopold admitted that he did have that in mind, Uh, he said very, you know, made it very clear saying it is a question of creating a new state as big as possible and of running it. Stanley would go on to help carve up, uh, you know, Africa on behalf of colonial powers and historians have not looked kindly on him for his role in the colonization of Africa. Stanley manipulated a lot of tribes into fighting each other. He was also uh, pretty ruthless in his use of modern weaponry against natives while opening a route to the upper Congo for trade. We can do a whole suck on Stanley sometime. Uh, in 1886, Stanley led the Amin Pasha relief expedition I mentioned to rescue Amin Pasha, right? The governor of Equatoria in, in Southern Sudan, held hostage by locals. Uh, sadly, he, he would rescue Pasha, but he would not get him out of Africa. He would, uh, Pasha would die in Africa, killed by rebels a couple years later. James S. Jameson would tag along on this ill-fated expedition. He would become part of a real rear column of the expedition, sometimes better known as the lost column. And who was James S. Jameson again? Jimmy James was the son of Andrew Jameson and Margaret Cochran, making him the great-grandson of Jameson Whiskey's founder, John Jameson. As a super wealthy heir to a whiskey empire, Jameson lived a good life. He was also, as much as I tried to paint him as a, uh, you know, nothing-to-do trust funder, he was a talented artist known as one of the great naturalist artists and sketchers of the late 19th century's age of exploration. James S. was famed in his day for sketches of butterflies and birds, made during travels through Southern Africa, Borneo, and the Rocky Mountains of North America, which is something you do, you fall into, <laughs> if you just have, you know, a lot of money, don't have to ever really work. Uh, it would be some of these sketches that he would make on the, some of the sketches that he would make on this trip into Africa that would ruin his reputation forever. Uh, the trip seemed like a good idea at first. He was an experienced traveler, ready to face danger in the forests of the Congo Basin. He hoped he would be going on a fantastic expedition that would, would have people all over Europe talking about him. And that would happen, but not for the reasons he'd hoped. The expedition ended up taking James Jameson to a village along a slave and ivory trading trail that also happened to be where rumors of cannibalism were floating around. The village was called Lukando Kasongo in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Around April of 1888, Jameson and his crew had been abandoned by Stanley, cut adrift from the main column. They were basically lost. 
After the deaths of numerous expedition team members to a few skirmishes with locals and disease, the shrinking group of Europeans had become desperate guests at the mercy of their guide, uh, Tipitip, an infamous independent Arab warlord and slave slash ivory trader in his private army. Tip Tip uh, is an interesting historical figure. He was a black African Arab who sold reportedly tens of thousands of fellow Africans into slavery over the course of a long life. Did a lot of ivory trading too. There was nothing this guy wouldn't sell. Elephants, people, you know, kids. He didn't care what you did with anything he sold either. Over 73 years, he worked, yeah, as a slave trader, ivory trader, explorer, uh, governor who helped rule Zanzibar for several sultans on East Africa's coast. And he led numerous expeditions into Central Africa. Tip Tip's real name was Hamad bin Muhammad bin Juma bin Rajab el Majurib, which is a mouthful. Thank God he was given a much shorter nickname. Tip Tip was born in 1887 into a Zanzibar merchant dynasty at a time when trading routes from Zanzibar were just beginning to reach into other areas, including present day Republic of Zaire. It was during the course of his third expedition that he gained the nickname of Tip Tip, a uh, representation of the sound of, of firearms. And uh, he befriended the British missionary and explorer David Livingstone. In 1870, as the head of a 4,000-man caravan, uh, Tip Tip returned to the Congo and over the following decade built a formidable trading empire. In the process, Tip Tip uh, established control. Sometimes it's like, it's, it said like Tip Tip. It's like this slight uh, in the middle. Tip Tip. It's just easier for me to say Tip Tip. But just if you're, if you're like, ah, I'm actually a, a Tip Tip expert. And it's actually a Tip Tip. I know, but it makes it makes it sound even weirder if I try and do that. Uh, he established control over a number of African chiefs who agreed to serve as his vassals, as well as a number of rival Zanzibari traders. He was killing it. In October of 1876, Tip Tip first met Henry Morton Stanley, who persuaded him to uh, escort his expedition down the Congo River. Stanley in the Upper Congo founded a trading post at what was named Stanley Falls, a site which Arab traders also wanted to use for commercial purposes. Years later, in early 1877, Stanley arrived in Zanzibar and proposed that Tip Tip now be made governor of the Stanley Falls District in the Congo Free State, and Tip Tip accepted. At the same time, he agreed to man the expedition, which Stanley had been commissioned to organize for the purpose of rescuing Amin Pasha. Then by April of 1888, Jameson, Tip Tip, uh, uh, you know, uh, and Tip Tip had broken away from Stanley and his main party, right, uh, for the reasons that were not, enti- were not entirely known, or not entirely known. Uh, maybe because of cannibalism. Instead, Tip Tip is leading Jameson and his dwindling sick party now down an old slaver trail to possibly rub shoulders with some cannibals. Uh, there's not a lot of reliable documentation. And uh, if there's any date inconsistencies, really tried to clean them up. But, but around this expedition, it's like every source has a slightly different timeline. Uh, it's very frustrating that way for this part of the information. Yeah, just not very good documentation about this. Uh, but the expedition uh, seems to have unraveled once, uh, you know, the, the two groups were separated in the jungles of Africa. By April 1888, the only other European officer, in addition to Jimmy James, in the ragtag rear column was British Army Major Edmund Musgrave Bartolot, who by this point, for some reason, went batshit crazy. He had recently kicked a camp boy to death, killed another with 300 lashes from a rhino hide bullwhip, and then he uh, will shortly be shot dead by a local strongman after physically attacking the man's wife. Too many days marching to the jungle had maybe broken him. Jameson, meanwhile, also struggling with his mental health. These motherfuckers are going full apocalypse, you know, now. The horror. The horror. Uh, Jimmy James and his men are becoming increasingly interested in stories of the area's cannibals. Jameson starts asking Tip Tip about these stories and travelers' tales of slaves being eaten. And Tip Tip was the wrong man to bring up, uh, you know, a curiosity and some real dark shit to if you weren't very interested in actually encountering that dark shit. He was like John Goodman's character in The Big Lebowski, right? Uh, Walter. 
Remember Walter? He's going to get you a toe. Are they going to get... You want a toe? I can get you a toe. Believe me. There are ways, dude. You don't want to know about it. Believe me. Yeah, but Walter... Hell, I can get you a toe by 3 o'clock this afternoon with nail polish. (laughs) Fucking amateur. Walter. (laughs) He was that guy. He was that guy. He's going to get you a toe. When Jimmy James spoke up to him about rumors of cannibalism, Tip Tip was like, I can get you a cannibal. I can find you some cannibals. You want somebody eating? I can get you somebody eating. Uh, He said he would give Jameson a hands-on experience. So Tip Tip tells Jameson that for six handkerchiefs, he could buy a local child and watch cannibals kill and eat her. What a very odd transaction. I'd like to buy a child to eat. Okay, we can do that, but it's going to cost you. I'll pay any price. Good, because it is very expensive. Name it and I will pay it. Six handkerchiefs. Then I picture Jimmy James just thinking, is this guy fucking serious? I thought he was going to ask for like 5,000 pounds or something. He wants six handkerchiefs. Uh, Jameson paid him. (laughs) And that's kind of a weird deal. The six handkerchiefs thing is inconsistent as the sources are. That detail remains consistent. Everybody seems to agree. Oh yeah, no, it was six handkerchiefs. Uh, And when the story gets out later, the bad press around it allegedly helps put an end to European expeditions into Africa. Uh, It would also pit Henry Morton Morton Stanley and his reputation against the Jameson family and their reputation, becoming one of the great international scandals of the late Victorian era. Uh, Jameson paid his six handkerchiefs through Tip Tip and uh, Tip Tip informed the village chief uh, that the necessary arrangements had been made. Assad Farhan, Jameson's, uh, you know, Syrian interpreter would later give his account of the whole incident in an affidavit. He would report... A man returned a few minutes afterward with a 10-year-old girl. Tip-Tip and the chiefs ordered the girl to be taken to the native huts. Jameson himself, Salim, Masandi, Farani, uh, Jameson's servant, presented him by Tip-Tip and many others followed. The ill-fated little girl was presented to some cannibals in front of the uh, Europeans. This is a present from a white man who desires to see her eaten, said the man who brought the young girl. What the fuck? Then Jameson got out his sketchbook, as one does in a situation like this, to document the grisly scene that followed. Uh, Maybe. Jameson uh, would later tell his wife that he actually painted the image from memory, not while it was happening, which is kind of like a weird (laughs) defensive thing. I I didn't know. I wasn't painting. What do you think? I'm a monster Uh, painting this while she's being eaten and killed? No, I did not do that. I did, you know, I I did like uh, half an hour later. I did a little bit later. Uh, He stressed also to his wife that he was trying to make the best of a bad situation, that he didn't intend for this to happen. Uh, he, He wrote as if, as if, Basically, he had made a joke. Tip Tip had taken him seriously. And then now this just happened and he couldn't stop it, which does not seem to be true. Uh, this claim seems to be bullshit based on other accounts of how it went down. According to many of the accounts given by Crewman, the girl did not struggle, but stoically accepted her fate, which is so crazy, knowing that she was going to be killed and eaten. Uh, she quietly watched her fellow tribesmen as they sharpened their knives. As, as Jimmy James got out his watercolors, what the fuck? Uh, She apparently stayed quiet as they tied her to a tree, and then one of the men stabbed her twice in the belly. According to Ferran's account, she did not scream, but knew what would happen, looking to the right and left for help. When stabbed, she fell dead. The natives cut pieces from her body. What the fuck? Jameson drew pictures of all this. Jameson created a total of six different images of the event in watercolor sketches. What kind of sociopath? Just calmly watercolors a girl being killed and eaten. I wonder if he was happy with how it turned out, like like his... His watercolors. Ah, I'm just not sure I got her eyes right. I mean, she was quiet, but there was a there was an anguish in her eyes that you really ah, had to kind of just be there to see it. I just I wish I would have got it. What a pity. Uh, the first sketch shows the girl tied to a tree with people around her sharpening their knives. Can you imagine going out like that? My God. The next one shows her being stabbed in her belly, blood gushing from her wounds, running down her small body. Third sketch shows the tribesman dissecting her body parts with a large knife. 
like she's a deer. Uh, the last three images show men carrying off different body parts as they prepare the meat to be eaten. You can find those sketches on uh, Imager if you're morbidly curious like myself. Link in the show notes that you can download from the TimeSuck app. We attach notes with sources, links to all the episodes there. <sighs> you can just Google it to get to that Imager gallery as well. Uh, according to some of the accounts, Jameson apparently showed these sketches to the chief for approval. Like, oh, then I get it right. You think this is accurate? Uh, this would lead many to think that Jameson's claim that the entire event started as a joke uh, and he was shocked and horrified to be less than truthful. Uh, James Jameson would not survive his journey to tell his side of the story in any great detail. He would not be able to ever defend himself against the rumors. He fell ill with a fever just a few weeks or a few months later. Again, the timeline sketch in all this. Died in Stanley Falls. Most accounts seem to agree. August 3rd, 1888. He was just about to turn 32 years old. On his deathbed, he wrote a letter to his wife who later published that account in papers making her best effort to save his ruined reputation. Uh, allegations and counter-allegations made by Stanley, survivors of the expedition, the Jameson family, uh, British colonial officials will be made via letters and editorials in the most influential newspapers of Dublin, London, even New York. Stanley and his allies would accuse Jameson of what was regarded as amongst the most horrible crimes imaginable. B buying a young slave girl for the sole purpose of having her murdered so that a cannibalistic scene might be presented for a sketchbook. It's a quote from one of the uh, papers. The Jameson family fired back, accusing Stanley and others of fabricating horror stories, attacking an honorable man who was not alive to defend himself. Stanley's reputation uh, was not doing really well at this point either. His expedition had become a three-year continent-crossing trek of slaughter, savagery, and disease, uh, costing hundreds and hundreds of lives. The public was merciless with its criticism. To many, calling Jameson a cannibal looked like Stanley was just trying to uh, find a fall guy, trying to distract from his own failures. To many others, though, Jameson was a cannibal. He might as well have eaten the girl. Rumors floated around that he did. Uh, the Jameson's family name would be tarnished for years and years because of the sketches he drew that were published, sketches carried out of the jungle by one of the last survivors of the expedition. No one seems to deny that these were his sketches. And it clearly details his involvement in dark rites for many who have condemned him forever. Uh, for years, the Jameson name would be synonymous, not with whiskey, but with cannibalism. What a weird little blemish, not little, huge blemish uh, on the Jameson reputation. Uh, strange historical moment, right? Very weird. Very weird. And uh, you know what else is weird? Uh, our final sponsor of this episode. Sorry, we do have one more. Time Suck is brought to you today. I'm very excited. I'm hoping they're going to be a long-time sponsor of the show by the upcoming uh, series on A&G, Dog the Bounty Hacker. Dog the Bounty Hacker follows the trials and tribulations of the world's most elite hacker, MIT-educated Dwayne Dog Chapman a.k.a. Dog the Bounty Hunter, now known as Dog the Bounty Hacker. With his signature long, blonde locks, sleeveless vests, and Oakley sunglasses, Dog the Bounty Hacker is all over the interwebs, bringing criminals down. With his all-new signature phrases like, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the dog's ability to manipulate numerous coded languages and recognize security breaches that make the dog the best at stopping cybercrime. And, born on a mountain, raised in a cave, intercepting data breach transmissions and deconstructing malware and piecing together the proper IP addresses is all I crave. And also, dog is God spelled backwards and God sees all and God will dox every last motherfucker in the world that thinks he can keep his child porn hidden behind a dark wall, a uh, dark web, a uh, paywall. I knew, I knew what the right word was. I just, I was just messing around. Dog, the bounty hacker. Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Central Time this summer on A&G. Sounds like a good show, yeah. I'd watch Dog the Bounty Hacker. Uh, and that's the end of this show. <laughs> Outside of some takeaways and some time sucker updates, uh, there's really not much else written about Jimmy James Jameson's encounter with cannibalism. Just a really, really weird 
historical moment that understandably was a, uh, you know, a big news focus of its day, big scandal. And uh, let's wrap up and just look back at it a few more times. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the quintessential Irish whiskey brand was invented by a Scotsman, James Jameson. Uh, John Jameson. I had James on the brain still. John Jameson married Margaret Haig, the eldest daughter of John Haig and Margaret Stein, who both came from their own whiskey dynasties or dynasties, if you prefer. Uh, together, they would make a brand of whiskey that would eventually become by far the best-selling Irish whiskey in the world with 2019 sales passing 8 million cases. Each case is three gallons. That's a, that's a lot of whiskey. Number two, James S. Jameson, Jimmy James, seems to have paid to have a 10-year-old Congolese slave girl be murdered and eaten in front of him while in the Congo on an expedition, and that stained the Jameson brand name for years, as you would think. Not sure what brand name a cannibalism association would not stain. Maybe, uh, maybe Tums. I don't know. Fights heartburn fast, even when you're digesting a kid. I'll stop. Number three, alcohol does not come from yeast infections, but it does come from yeast. And I just wanted to bring that up to put that imagery back in your head. Number four, there are a lot of different kinds of whiskey with their own regulations about what they have to be made from and how long they have to be stored, where they're made. There's Irish whiskey, Scotch whiskey, Japanese whiskey, American bourbon, rye whiskey, blended whiskey, single malt, the list goes on and on. To find out what you like, experts recommend trying whiskeys just a little tiny bit watered down. Just flick a few drops of water in there to get the best representation of the real flavor and aroma. Or if you really don't care what they taste like and you just want to get drunk, just grab yourself some Old Crow and find that ditch to enjoy it in. Number five, new info. John Jameson, in addition to being the great-grandfather of Jimmy James, was also the great-grandfather of inventor uh, Guillermo Marconi. Guillermo Marconi. Uh, we met him in the Titanic, its sinking, and the conspiracies that surrounded episode. Marconi was an Italian inventor, electrical engineer, and successful businessman who is credited as the inventor of radio and was a pioneer in long-stance radio transmission research and the developer of Marconi's Law and a radio telegraph system. He shared the 1909 Nobel Prize in physics with Carl Ferdinand Braun in recognition of their contributions to the development of wireless telegraphy. Or telegraphy. Uh, without him, we might not even have podcasts to listen to today. And he never paid anyone to eat kids ever. So cheers, Marconi. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Uh, Jameson whiskey and cannibalism has now been sucked. Uh, a shorter episode than normal, a different episode than normal. I hope you still enjoyed it. I very much struggled to figure out how to construct this one. There was a lot of rearranging in this episode as it went from uh, Zach to Sophie to me. It basically was just uh, uh, built, torn down, built, torn down, built, torn down, rebuilt. And I hope it was fun. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making time suck. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, the script keeper, Zach Flannery, Sophie Fact Sorceress Evans, Bit Elixir, Logan Art Warlock, Keith, running badmagicmerch.com, working on our socials along with Liz Hernandez. Thanks to all those who follow us on socials and are part of various private Facebook groups on Facebook and Discord. Next week, a return to the classic format, cult, cult, cult. Uh, one of my favorite uh, genres of things to look into. Favorite favorite subject areas, perhaps. The Angels Landing Cult. Cult leaders tend to twist religions to fit their own narrative, to serve their own motives. We know that. Daniel Perez, leader of a cult at Angels Landing, was no exception. He claimed three different angels possessed his body, making him commit horrific crimes against children, life insurance fraud, and murder. Uh, interesting. That sounds like three really shitty angels. Sounds like he had maybe angels confused with demons or mental illness. 
the controlledest lunatic possessed over his group was so strong they wittingly or willingly, even sometimes happily, killed themselves when he told them it was their time to die. Perez moved from state to state with his followers for over 20 years and planned to continue his life of crime until he either died or got caught. Thankfully, he got caught. The 61-year-old now sits in the Lansing Correctional Facility in Kansas, where he will remain for the rest of his life, sentenced to life in prison for murder and rape. How many people did this guy lead? What kind of crazy messages did he preach supposedly on behalf of God? Find out next week on another cult, cult, cult edition of Time Suck. And now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. A lot of hacker updates coming in this past week. I love it. Uh, this, this first one is from pro hacker sack, Clint Dunsworth. Clint writes, Hello suck, Ma- Hello, suck Master Flex. Uh, just listened to the Suck on Anonymous, and I wanted to write in to give you a little perspective on the matter of internet piracy. To start off, I just want to be clear that I in no way endorse piracy, and since you are a creator whose very living is based on what you create, I completely understand your hard stance against it. I just wanted to give you a couple things to consider that might provide you with some perspective to see that the issue is a lot grayer than people uh, outright stealing from artists such as yourself it can be perceived. Just as a heads up, I'm fully aware that I have a very high chance of sounding like an asshole (laughs) in this email, but I'm hoping you'll take this email as one of those that respectfully challenges your stance on the subject. Absolutely. I I wish we got more of these. Uh, For starters, internet piracy does not equate to lost sales since there's no way to guarantee that the pirates would have bought the product if that was their only option. Uh, Some of them might have. Yeah, I think some of them probably would. Uh, but others wouldn't bother because the only reason they're interested in obtaining the product was because they had the opportunity to get it for free. And I do see what you're saying there. And I do agree with that, with the point that, yeah, like if you, let's say a million people steal something and then some artist is claiming like, well, I just lost a million sales. I, I do agree. That's not true. The, the million people who are going to buy it or who, who stole it were also uh, not going to buy it. Like all those, if they, if they had no other way to get it. You know, I don't know what the percentage would be, but I imagine it would be, you know, fairly small. It might be like 5, 10, 15, 20% or something. So, yes. Uh, so, there is that. Um, uh, next, sorry. Now I lost some of them might have, but others wouldn't bother because the only reason, yes. Uh, granted, they're still getting something for free. However, it's not as though they're stealing money out of your wallet since there's no guarantee that money was ever going to be in your wallet in the first place. Okay, yeah. All this to say simply that one of the reasons people pirate things is because they can't otherwise afford it. I'm certain that there's plenty of dick nuggets out there that feel like they shouldn't have to pay for anything. And yeah, those people are assholes. And I, yes, I've known a lot of those people who absolutely could afford it. Just like, I don't want to. Uh, and you know, f- uh, full full disclosure, I, in the past, uh, in some instances where I'm like, well, I don't want to subscribe to this channel to get this movie and I can pirate. I haven't done it in years. When I was younger, I did that and I could have bought it. So I was one of those assholes. Um, like I said, though, this matter isn't exactly black and white, though. Where things really start to get gray is when you look at another one of the big reasons that people pirate things, the lack of ability to purchase the product legitimately. And I like this point you bring up. For example, back in September, Nintendo put out a game called Mario 3D All-Stars to celebrate the 35th anniversary of Mario. Along with that game's release, they announced that it will only be available until the end of March. After that, it's going to be pulled from both physical and digital stores, so there will be absolutely no way to get it. True to their word, Nintendo pulled the game from all the digital stores, stopped restocking physical game stores with new copies. So once that last wave of physical copies got sold out, there was no longer any way to buy the game. So how is somebody, so how is someone that wants to play the game supposed to get it? Nintendo shut down all possible ways to buy the game legitimately. The only option left for someone that wants that game is to pirate it. I highly doubt that anything I've said here will get you to change your mind on the matter. No, but I do like that. That's an angle where it's like, okay, I think that's very different than getting something that you could buy and just choosing to take it. 
and you know, and, and on disclosure, there, like there's an old album I have that I just don't like, <laughs> like an early one called Lower Your Goals. It was, in my opinion, the recording quality is fucking terrible. And it was recorded early on. I don't sell it anymore, but I know it's out there. And I know, I know people are, I don't know where even, but I know people have found it and still able to get it. And I don't give a shit. Uh, whoever downloads that, whatever illegally, I, yeah, I don't care. Uh, so I, I get that. Um, but again, I highly doubt that anything I've said here will uh, get you to change your mind on the matter. Again, your stance is completely justified considering what you do for a living, but hopefully it's at least given you something to think about and showed how the matter is not as black and white, right? As you made it. Yeah. To be perfectly clear, I never pirate products because I'm fortunate enough to be blessed with a decent paying job that allows me to buy the games and movies and virtual live show tickets. Uh, can't wait till tomorrow, the 22nd. I hope you had fun on that show that we had. That was so much fun to do that I want. Just saying the people who do choose to pirate aren't always just assholes who refuse to pay for things they should. Space lizard, creeper, dummy. And after this email, probably an asshole, Clint. No, I do not think you're an asshole, Clint. No, I, 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 I do think you made me think about a different point though. There's this thing of like, let's say you can't afford all these games you want. And then you, I think it's an interesting thing that some people will use that justification where it's like, yeah, but I don't make enough money uh, to get those games. So that's why I stole them. <laughs> it's like, uh, you can really take that to a lot of places. It's like, I mean, there's, there's things all of us want that, you know, we can't afford. I would love to have a house in Bali. I think that'd be pretty sweet. You know, I, I want that. I want a house in Bali, but I don't have the money to get a house in Bali. But that wouldn't be justification for me to just like, if I could just somehow steal the deed to property. Like there's this thing where um, I think a lot of people confuse want and need. Like, you know, uh, just because you want something doesn't mean you need it. You know, I, uh, there's plenty of things I've wanted over the course of my life that I didn't get because I couldn't afford it. And, and, I, and I didn't really try hard to get them because I didn't need them. Uh, and I think like with like, um, artistic content, it's very different taking that than it is like food. If you're starving and you're stealing food, that's a, there, there, you can, there's a very different justification for that than there is just for like, yeah, but I want to see that and I don't have the money to buy it, but I really want to see it. Well, fucking tough shit. Uh, and this is from someone again, who has stolen plenty of things, uh, in his life. Uh, but yeah, do not think you're an asshole, Clint. And, and you, and you do, you did bring up some points that I definitely didn't think of. So thank you for doing that. Another anonymous update now from an anonymous fan, justice-loving sucker, Sandra Salvato. Sandra writes, I saw that this week's topic is anonymous and I wanted to write in and tell you about my own experience with the group. I worked in Newton, Connecticut for 15 years. Might be Newtown. I, I went ahead with Newton. Maybe it's, New, maybe it's Newtown. And I was working in the town during the Sandy Hook shootings. Oh yeah. Uh, I had friends who lost their children that day. The tragic event brought out the wackos and scumbags. Oh man, did it ever. Fucking Alex Jones. Uh, during the aftermath, those scumbag Baptist people showed up. Yep, the Westboro people. They brought more pain and grief to an already horrific environment. They tormented the families by saying God took their kids because of gruesome things that I will not repeat. Uh, yep. No, I do not agree with everything Anonymous does, but they helped beyond words. They saw what those scumbags were doing, published what hotels they were staying in, and other helpful information. That is awesome. I, I will only say it aided in keeping those scumbags away from the wakes and the funerals. It got so bad for those scumbags that they went home. I will forever be grateful to Anonymous. If they are hearing this, thank you. Keep, uh, oh, actually, and actually, actually, you know what you wrote? And I, I, I thought it was a typo, but I get what you're doing now. If they are reading this, thank you. Yeah, like if they hack the emails, yeah. Keep up the great show. You make my work day go by quicker. Have a great day, Sandra. Oh, thank you, Sandra. That is very cool to hear. Uh, obviously, I didn't, you know, use that example that they actually got the, the Westboro Baptist to go home. That's in not protest. I don't think I used that one. That is, that is very, very cool. Uh, now for an anonymous sucker, uh, another anonymous update left by an anonymous sucker uh, regarding War Games, that movie, that Matthew Broderick movie and phone freaking. They wrote, the movie War Games taught an old phone freaker trick. 
There's a scene where Matthew Broderick needed to make a call from a payphone and asked to borrow a paperclip. He unbent it and used it to contact the microphone of the handset to the base plate of the coin catch, thus shorting the phone, making it think a coin had been placed to make a call. This trick actually worked. I saw it in the movie, I tried it, and used the trick for several years until about the late 90s when the phone company started changing the payphone to prevent this. That is fucking crazy. At the time, however, another hack was available and you could download a WAV file of a quarter tone to play in the receiver for the same effect. I had an old hack back that I had uh, spliced a headphone jack onto in place of the microphone, recorded the quarter WAV file, used that to get free calls until the age of the payphone finally gave way to cell phones. Absolutely love the show. show. Three out of five stars. Keep on sucking. Anonymous. That is crazy. I, I never heard about any of that. And I'm old enough where all that stuff was around, you know, payphones are popular. I, I never knew anybody who knew how to hack the phones like that. Uh, and, and again, kind of like we were talking about theft a second ago. And I know that is stealing. You're stealing like that phone belongs belongs to uh, the telephone company. You know, that's how they make money. There's people's jobs. <laughs> but I mean, when I was younger, would I have done that? Uh, absolutely. Uh, just to see if I could mostly just be like, oh my God, I, I, I'm a hacker now. Uh, thank you, Anonymous. Uh, now one of many emails we got from somebody who fell for my dog, the bounty hacker bullshit, which made me so happy. I didn't think that was going to work. Uh, duped sack, Ryan, uh, all writes, yo, you motherfucker, Bojangles will get you. I was listening to this week's podcast on Anonymous was on my lunch break. You then explained how dog, the bounty hunter had graduated from MIT. And of course, as I'm hearing this, I'm looking at the clock thinking, oh shit, I got a clock in, take calls from my company. But the fact I found so goddamn funny, uh, that I sent a text to my best friend's group chat. Now, having finished the episode, uh, they have all Googled this. I am the mockery of our group chat. <laughs> Bojangles, heed my prayer and rip this meat sack's nuts off for, for the embarrassing, uh, for the, for the embarrassment cuts deep. Love the show. I've been a fan of your standup since I was in middle school. Please don't stop. You've brightened my life. Uh, Ryan, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Ryan, man. That was shitty timing for you to hear that first part right before you had to go back to work, send the, the group uh, text. Oh boy. It's going to be a while. It's going to be a while before you hear the end of that. I, will, I would say that with that group of friends, every time the dog, dog, the bounty hunter just pops up in one of their lives, you're going to hear something. And, and you made me so happy. So please never stop sometimes falling for those things and embarrassing yourself. Uh, still another anonymous update from another anonymous fan, hacker fan, meat sack, Tyler S. Tyler writes, hey, suck master supreme. I've been listening to the suck since uh, last year after Pandora recommended scared to death to me. Uh, I've been hooked ever since. I listened to the anonymous suck and have been, have to say my hometown had an event that anonymous got involved in. In the town of Steubenville, Ohio, there was a massive rape scandal that took place at a high school party. I remember that. Yeah, the big red high school. Among the debauchery of underage drinking, a girl had passed out drunk. Two top football players from the football team proceeded to take advantage of her. These dirtbags posted the videos to a secret fan website for the big red football team called Roll Red Roll. Because these football players were well-known, talented, easily qualifying for scholarships. Many people tried to sweep it under the rug. Anonymous exposed these dirtbags, and they got tried as adults uh, for not only sexual assault, but the videos they had, uh, they made, you know, it was possession of child pornography. Thanks for the amazing content. Sorry, not sorry for the long email. Three to five stars wouldn't change a thing. Uh, thank you, Tyler. Uh, I did not know that Anonymous was behind that either. I don't think I, it all blurs in my mind, like which ones we talked about, which ones I've been reading as updates. But uh, yeah, that is, I mean, they, they have done some very, very good social justice things here, you know, and helped uh, dox people, expose people who otherwise would have gotten away with, you know, horrific crimes. So thank you for sending that in. And then one final hacker update now 
from another anonymous sucker. They write, greetings, father of all that sucks, big fan of all things bad magic. If you decide to use this, please keep my name out as I live in the cat and mouse game of information security for a living. I wanted to reach out regarding your recent podcast about anonymous in the world of hacking. Most of the data breaches we see today are from entities overseas, and there are specific internet port ranges that they come from. And while you can spoof IP addresses, most people get sloppy and you can follow the bouncing ball to fi find where they originate. That's how, that's how Dog the Bounty Hacker gets them, I'm pretty sure. Uh, there are also scammers who utilize card scanners on gas pumps or card readers to get your information. Also, there are other hackers that are named bug hunters. They make a very good living with bug bounties, reporting hacks found in different software and operating systems. Oh, that's awesome. Somebody's having like this big bug, this big issue, and then you just pay some hacker like, hey, we'll give you $50,000, $100,000, whatever, if you can find that bug and fix the code. That's super cool. Uh, recently, someone found two bugs in a rather large software platform and received $100,000 per bug. Holy shit. Most self-described hackers are generally good people who like to drink a lot. I recommend looking into DEFCON, DEFCON.org. Uh, it's in their 29th iteration this year. If you happen to go, I recommend taking a burner laptop and phone you don't care if they hack into. Also, don't wear or use Bluetooth devices. It's a very large hacking conference. I bet that gets fucking wild. It's in Las Vegas. Uh, uh, you know, every year other than the year of the pandemic, they have workshops on social engineering, biomedical and wireless hacking, even vehicle hacking. I went to a few of these conferences where I watched them hack voting machines. Yes, voting machines. That's terrifying. Uh, IV pumps and a new Dodge Challenger. The best of the best go to this along with feds. Holy shit. They actually have a game called Spot the Feds that the hackers play. <laughs> if you have further questions, let me know. I'll try to answer them as best I can uh, as technology changes quickly and we have to adapt with it. Sorry, not sorry for the length. Hail Lucifina and keep on sucking. Thank you, Anonymous. And again, if you, anybody wants to check that out, it's defcon.org. Uh, I would, there. yeah, there's no fucking way I would go to that thing with my actual phone or my actual laptop. I don't know if, I don't know if I would have thought of that though before you saying that. But uh, man, some of the best hackers in the world hanging out around that place. It sounds like a movie waiting to happen. Thank you for sharing that. Did not know that at all about hacker culture. Jesus, someone just read their engine right outside, uh, about jumped out of my seat. Uh, finally, an update to the old Emmanuel David Colt suck. This is intense. You remember that sock lover? Straightened out sack, Chelsea Ellis does. Chelsea writes, no longer crooked, thanks to Emmanuel David. I don't know if you remember that episode. That was one of his faith healing claims that he could like, you know, help people with spinal issues. Uh, she writes, I'd offer a clever intro, but you've been called damn near every name possible. And I'm just not that witty. I don't remember how I came across this mess. <laughs> That's perfect. But I, yes, but I've been binging the fuck out of it for months now. That just cracked me up because just before this recording, Joe and I were joking around. We're like, I have no idea why this works. Uh, I need a podcast because while I sew up my catnip toys for the new side hustle, hey, it's helping pay for this divorce. Can I get a hail triple M? Hail triple M. Uh, I found trying to watch TV while operating a fast moving needle was not the smartest idea. Uh, the marriage being the first. Hey, oh. <laughs> Uh, I'm currently at the Emmanuel David episode and I hear your skepticism of him curing scoliosis. Look, I don't like supporting or encouraging wackadoodles any more than the next cult member, but I got to give props where props are due. I was diagnosed with scoliosis in elementary school with that super fun test where they gather all the kids, have them bend over one by one in front of the gym teacher who always seems to be male, prepubescent teen girls offering the behinds to a grown man. Could that be some kind of pedo conspiracy disguised as a health screening? Hmm, Illuminati. I remember barely bending before they ushered me off to the side opposite everyone else. Thankfully, I never needed surgery, but as an adult, bending over or showing my x-ray attached for funsies, yes, you didn't see it. It's kind of cloudy. Uh, I think I took a, a breath and they said to hold it. I was always a rebel. Uh, was like my party trick, guaranteed to make me memorable. While I never needed surgery, I still would sometimes look up what was new in the medical world involving scoliosis and actually came across David's cure. 
seems simple enough. You actually weren't too far off in your joke about stretching someone out on a table by pulling at opposite ends. I figured, what the hell do I have to lose? Surgery, while having come a long way since early 90s, still possessed that risk of paralysis that terrified me. So I contacted Emmanuel David. I went in with a healthy dose of doubt. Well, uh, those of us born crooked always wonder how different we would look, feel if we were straight. And let me tell you, it took some time getting used to an extra two and a half inches of height uh, of height I gained. I'm still too short for the top shelf in grocery stores, but the petite size jeans are now the perfect length for me. What? To have found a non-surgical solution to this thing I've hated about myself for my entire life is worth having to contact you to tell you none of this is true, you asshole. And I read that before I tried to sell it again because the first time I read this, you fucking got me. I was like, what? How can you just stretch someone into having a better spine? And then, and then Chelsea writes, I'm still crooked as fuck, but I'm also still mad over having fallen over that goddamn Humphrey Bogart shit in the Manhattan Project suck. I had Twitter brought up and was typing, did y'all fucking know Humphrey Bogart pretended to be killed in front of people <laughs> when you got me? But no more. I've gotten pretty good at predicting your shenanigans, mainly because I just now assume everything you say is utter bullshit. Thanks for keeping me company while I really fine-tune my new life of divorcee in her 30s with multiple cats. Side note, if some other crooked bitch beat me to this joke, I'm going to be so pissed. <laughs> that's so funny. But I'll uh, also need their contact info because that's someone I want to be friends with. Chelsea. Well, Chelsea, yeah, like I said, you did get me with that bullshit. You really did. Nice. And uh, I thought that was very funny. So so thank you. I hope you fall for more of my bullshit. And, you know, hope down the road you get me with more of your bullshit. Best luck with the cats. Um, There's there's jokes. There's, there's low-hanging fruit jokes I'm sure I can make that you brought up the cat lady thing, you know, surrounded by pussy. That's not bad. Stuff like that. Anyway, I'm gonna get out of here. Uh, I feel crazy. I'm gonna move on out of Time Sucker updates. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to this Bad Magic Productions podcast. Meet sex. I hope it made sense. I think it did. Again, I rewrote it so many times that as I'm going through the notes, I'm like, wait a minute. Is that something I said before? Or is that something I, I didn't say before? Is that something that was on draft one or draft six? Uh, please don't pay to watch any kids get eaten this week. Maybe just relax. Step on a nice whiskey ginger and keep on sucking instead. I knew what the right word was. I just, I just messing around. Did you know that Delaware has endless discoveries? The first state invites you to explore miles of beaches and boardwalks, dozens of unique breweries, award-winning restaurants, some of the country's best state parks, beautiful garden estates, and even tax-free shopping. There's plenty of fun for the entire family and more. Find trip ideas and all the info you need to plan your Delaware discoveries at visitdelaware.com. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.